Journalism for All. This is an Office Hours stream being recorded on December 7, 2023, near the end of the year here, just a few weeks remaining, and we're over at twitch.tv slash socialismS4A, where I'm joined in the chat with uh, by 42 viewers. Um, we do these pretty much every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. UTC GMT. Actually, I don't know if UTC and GMT are the same all the time, but we'll stick with the UTC um, for now, and that is 9 p.m. So anyway, yeah, these are pretty much a weekly thing. So um, what do we have for today? This being an office hour stream, I don't have really a lot that I want to do off the bat as far as clipped articles and things. There's a few things that I want to mention. Otherwise, this is up to the viewers and people in the chat to come up with... Uh, you know, whatever kind of questions and discussion topics that they want to do. Um, and yeah, last week, bonus food talk was excellent. So people who've been listening to these streams for a while know that I've been talking about doing a Cooking with S4A stream, uh, well, Cooking with S4A segment of some kind. And I think I just figured out last week how to do it. We've been kind of theorizing it for a while. I think I'm just going to do an extra stream certain weeks and we'll do those live. So that's how we're going to do Cooking with S4A. I don't think, at least at first, I'm going to do any actual, um, you know, like uh, cooking stuff um, actually on screen. But what that is going to be, somebody was asking in the Patreon, um, what is Cooking with S4A? So we've been doing kind of food-related talk for a while. And this is an important thing, I think, for people to know. For me, um, you know, when I... I always kind of had an interest in food and cooking kind of my whole life. And then um, when I got out on my own, learning to cook and, you know, do cheap, healthy stuff that tasted good, that was huge for being able to live on a budget and, you know, contributed to my being able to not go into like huge amounts of debt and, you know, just manage finances, you know, within a proletarian framework of sort of barely subsisting. But it gave me an edge as far as just being able to make the most out of my food budget. And I think that that's key. And you can definitely also keep yourself healthier. You know, there's certain pillars of your health. Diet is one of them. Exercise or activity is another. Not everybody can exercise to like the same degree, but activity rather than just being purely sedentary um, of some kind, everybody usually can do some kind of activity, um, you know, unless you have like real severe paralysis or something. But, um, yeah, I mean, everybody can do some kind of activity for the most part. And just keeping yourself in the best kind of shape that you can. Sleep is another um, pillar of your health. So, you know, these kind of certain things. Diet is one that does require consumables. You know, there's like a certain material input that you need there. And so, yeah, cooking with S4A will be kind of a political economy of food. Um, I'll basically be taking one ingredient per week and we'll start with some staples like grains you know wheat barley rice oat stuff like that corn um going through the kind of staple grains uh that can be molded and shaped into many different things you know wheat can be turned into flour flour can be turned into bread or noodles or you know different things um and also you know what's the history of it when was it domesticated uh, what is the role, the political economy, the, the role of that foodstuff in the world economy today? 
Um, where is it produced? What countries import it? What countries export it? What's the sort of, again, political history of that food? And then um, how do you use it? We'll do some recipe stuff as well. Again, I don't think I'll be able to do uh, live cooking segments, at least at first, but um, we can you know, go on the, on the informational side with that. So that's going to be just an additional stream. We'll do it live, but it's going to take me a while to put together the whole presentation and write up all the research for it. Um, because yeah, that's something I don't want to bullshit. I want to put together some actually, um, decent presentations. I mean, not that I bullshit things in general. Um, but that's something, you know, I'd actually like to put together a nice report, you know, I follow the rule of if I don't know something, I say I don't know it. Uh, that'll be something where it's not just sort of off the cuff, but I will make sure to put together a lot of interesting stuff ahead of time. So, yeah, you know, sometimes we can just clip an article and then I can read it and we can riff off of sort of what's in my knowledge base and what's in the chat's knowledge base as far as like working knowledge um, and, you know, talk about other tie-ins and give references. This is something that I'll, I'll want to do a fair amount of research for um, per show. So it probably won't be every week, but um, anyway, that'll be some extra streams. That's how we're going to do Cooking With Us 4A. So finally figured that out because we did, at the end of last week's stream, talk about food-related topics for like an hour and a half. And I was like, you know, I could do that. I came away from that feeling pretty upbeat, actually. It was nice to talk about something other than like the most depressing stuff in the universe, um, you know, like just intense political struggle and wars and things like that. So, uh, you know, it was nice to talk about another important topic, but one that, you know, um, is just a little less scary. Everybody likes food uh, for the most part. You know, some people do have certain um, psychological behavioral challenges with like uh, eating disorders and things. But aside from that, I mean, food is a social thing. People eat together and it tends to be a uniting thing. So, uh and somebody's saying, I'm cooking dinner while listening right now, actually. Excellent. Yeah, food food tends to bring people together. So anyway, um, that will be uh, an ad additional feature that will be popping up on the channel soon. And like I said, we'll go through different foods, um, emphasis on vegetarian cooking, and uh, also go into herbs and spices, both culinary and uh things that might end up more in a tea for kind of more uh, health promotion or medicinal purposes. I think that stuff's really interesting. So, all right, that is uh, the Cooking with S4A announcement for the stream. Let's see what else I've got. Well, while we're talking about health, actually, let's do our BioBot update. So, bit of a U-turn here, um, 180 degrees. Some still health-related stuff, but not really uh, good or happy news. There is a big spike of COVID going on right now. If you see this uh, chart on the screen or screenshot with two charts is from BioBot. They do wastewater tracking, B-I-O-B-O-T.io slash data, BioBot.io. And so the top chart, the one that's in blue, that is the um, SARS-2 wastewater data. Basically, wastewater in the U.S. is monitored for all kinds of different substances including viral particles. So when you get sick, um, the virus multiplies in your body using your cell's own mechanisms to reproduce it. And then your body excretes, um, you know, uh, pieces of virus basically, which can then be detected in the wastewater. Now, the top chart is the entire pandemic going back to early 2020. And 
what you can see on the right side is where we are now. There is a near vertical spike of growth of um, uh, SARS coronavirus 2 circulation. Of course, the virus that causes COVID-19. Um, we are at the highest point of spread since last uh, winter, roughly, since about, looks like January. So it hasn't been this high since late January, and it is just growing super fast. So if you go down to the bottom, where it says COVID-19 wastewater monitoring by region, here it's broken down into the Northeast up to like Pennsylvania, uh, and it looks like Maryland. And then the southeast, basically Texas up to West Virginia and Virginia down to Florida. Then the Midwest, everything from Ohio over to Nebraska, the Dakotas, that kind of turf. And then the West, everything from the mountain states over to the West Coast and Alaska and Hawaii. So um, what we see is that the Midwest and the Northeast are sharply uh, rising. Actually, both of those regions are now over a thousand copies of virus per milliliter. That is really bad. So I basically say by the time you're at 750 or 800, your area is in a surge. Over a thousand is really, really significant. So if you go back up to the top, that averages those four together. And as you can see, it's like around 750 or 800 for the national average. That's because the West and the southeast are also experiencing growth, but slower growth. But the comparatively colder, um, you know, more indoor air Midwest and Northeast regions are, you know, it's definitely not like it might be 70 degrees in Texas and Florida. It definitely isn't in, you know, Pennsylvania, New York, and so on. So um, consequently, there are huge spikes in the Midwest and Northeast. Northeast just clearing a thousand and the Midwest around 1250. So that's really, and showing no signs of slowing down yet. So I happen to know um, a couple of people personally getting COVID, getting really sick. And what we have to remind people is the risk of COVID is not just that you're gonna catch it and die. That's of course a risk, but um, there is whole body damage that you can sustain with each infection of COVID. Every time you get it, the odds go up, whether it's kidney damage, cardiovascular damage, blood clotting related issues, pulmonary or lung damage, fatigue, diabetes, so pancreatic damage, uh, mental health, COVID, uh, because it infects your brain, can directly cause anxiety and depression and other mood disorders. Neurological issues like nerve dysfunction, also um, cognitive dysfunction, so you can have trouble thinking, remembering, and um, sort of uh, executive functioning, so tasks related to goal-based activity and planning and delayed gratification, things like that. Also musculoskeletal problems and GI or digestive problems. So there's a whole range of things. When you get infected with SARS-2, it'll infect pretty much any tissue in your body that has ACE2 receptors. That's basically all your major organs. And different people sustain different amounts of damage. Some people get more heart damage. Some people get more brain damage. Some people get more liver damage, whatever. Um, that's a problem. And then there's always the risk of long COVID where the virus kind of hangs out in your body. A lot of times it's the gut. Um, so in your intestines, the virus will 
create what's known as a viral reservoir and then keep living there. And it can cause a whole cascade of effects from autoimmunity, where it basically makes your immune system turn on your own tissue, or uh, inflammation directly from the virus and the virus spike. There's a whole host of things. Um, what else? Microbiome dysfunction. So the microbiome is microorganisms that live on your skin, in your mouth, in your digestive system, all kinds of different places in your body. There will be slightly different um, microorganisms that live, you know, on the skin. Those will be more salt tolerant because you sweat. And then ones that live on the inside of you, whatever. But uh, there can be big dysfunction uh, in the intestinal microbiome which is really important. Um, your intestinal microbiome makes more serotonin than your brain does. So really key in um, influencing your overall health and uh, the virus completely screws it up. So, you know, a lot of people I know have gotten COVID and then they have had no appetite or their stomach hurts all the time and they're not able to eat. It really can um, affect a lot of things besides just your lungs, although that is one of the main targets usually. So yeah, don't get COVID. I know some people right now who are super sick with it and this isn't okay to like give to your kids and it's, you know, just um, a much bigger health risk than it's being treated as uh, just because you may not die immediately from it. Um, that uh, doesn't mean that it's not a risk to your health. It absolutely is. And uh, we didn't even mention immune dysfunction. So uh, COVID is, or SARS coronavirus 2 is one of the only, go back to the um, Biobot screen, it's uh, one of the only viruses that attacks and kills T cells. So in your immune system, you have B cells and T cells. These are kind of the two main pillars of your immune system. So the SARS 2 virus will attack and kill T cells. The only other virus that does that is HIV. They don't do it to the same extent. And they don't do it, you know, in exactly the same way. But those are the two viruses that we know of that just straight up attack and murder your T cells. There are some other viruses that can turn T cells cancerous. Again, those are not real common. And in general, you know, viruses that target T cells in some kind of lethal or potentially lethal way are few and far between. SARS-2 is one of them. Don't get this thing. Mask up. So plan A is your mask in N95 we trust. Make sure you got a tight seal around your face. That's super important. You can also go better than an N95. There's N99s, there's P100s, there's, uh, and then in the P100, there's more disposable kinds, and then there's the more permanent elastomeric. It kind of looks more like a gas mask kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it's a, something, especially as we head into the winter, where there's always a big seasonal surge because of the indoor recirculated air and people being in closer proximity to each other. Plus, just some kind of cold-related immune suppression. Um, so like in your sinuses, for example, when the actual physical temperature of your nose and sinuses is lower, such as from exposure to cold weather, your immune system in your sinuses is less effective. So that's why people sometimes, you know, will catch a cold after cold exposure, hence the name a cold, um, because it does suppress your immune system, making you a bit more vulnerable to even run-of-the-mill viruses as, you know, the kind of uh, virus that causes the common cold. Um, SARS-2, though, is another virus, doesn't cause the common cold, causes pretty severe, uh, potentially, organ damage. So, you know, some people get away from uh, SARS without any 
discernible um, issues, many are not so lucky. So even if you're fully vaccinated and keeping up to date on your vaccinations is plan B in case of a mask failure, plan A being the mask, you know, things happen, sometimes straps break, got to stay up to date on your vaccines, get a booster shot. If you haven't had one in a while, get a booster shot. Now would be the time um, because things do happen. Masks break, you know, people cough right in your face. Sometimes somebody sneezes, uh, something gets in your eye you can get infected that way too, even if you're wearing a mask. So mask is a very good protection, N95 or better, uh, technically a respirator, not a mask. Um, but then stay up to date on your vaccines as well, just in case. And again, uh, check out the booster shots. I will mention for people who have some issue with the mRNA vaccines, um, I, you know, you might want to rethink that in the first place, but uh, the Novavax vaccine is now available as a booster to anyone. For a long time, it was not approved as a second booster, but the Novavax vaccine is um, supposed to be pretty good from everything I've read, and it's also not an mRNA vaccine. So for the people who have some issue with the mRNA vaccine, uh, there is Novavax as well, which is, I think, just supposed to be a pretty good vaccine in general. So get a booster shot and um, make sure that you come through this winter with minimal biological damage. All right. This concludes our uh, COVID uh, PSA from S4A. There we go. All right, what else is on the uh, announcements pile here? Uh, two things, I think. So we've been talking a lot about the coming housing crash and just putting the Federal Reserve's um, this chart, this is the S&P Case-Shiller U.S. National Home Price Index. So this is house prices. And as you can see, since the pandemic, I mean, the, um, the prices were going up since 2012. There was a big crash, of course, uh, in 2008 through 2010. 2011, it kept dropping. 2012, it bottomed out. And then it's been climbing since then. And we're now in a bubble, even this chart is not adjusted for inflation, but even if you adjust it for inflation, we're still in a bigger bubble now, bubble being overvaluation, prices being higher than they really should be compared to historical averages and long-term metrics of sustainability like um, you know, price to income ratio. What can people actually afford, in other words? And there's a bunch of ways to measure that, but by any standard, we're in a bubble. Technically, you can't prove it was a bubble until it pops, but after experiencing a number of different bubbles now, people are getting more savvy about, you know, we're in just runaway prices and it's going to pop at some point. So what we're in now is the everything bubble. Of course, housing is still driving it because housing is what people spend most of their money on. And, you know, if we talk about inflation and things like that, housing price is one of the core metrics within the inflation calculation. So it's very important to follow housing prices. It's one of the most basic needs. It's essential, you know, food, shelter, water that people need housing. And it's in a runaway bubble right now. As I was saying, it's been increasing since 2012, but then since 2020, it just like went into orbit basically. And it, it, it assumed an entirely different trajectory, basically increasing at, you know, two and a half, three times the rate that it had been increasing at for almost the previous decade. Then um, in 2020, it hit a peak, it dropped somewhat, and then there has been a rally in 2023. However, that is dropping again, and as we've discussed, 
Um, it hits different areas regionally, uh, you know, not everywhere all at once. So right now, the West Coast, down through the Southwest, down through Texas, down through the Gulf Coast and Florida, and up into like Tennessee maybe, those areas are dropping in price, while the Northeast and Midwest tend to be holding up with the higher prices for now. And um, what is going to happen soon with the Federal Reserve holding interest rates much higher, the interest rates have a close but not absolutely direct relationship to the housing situation. But basically, it makes it more expensive to take out a loan. And most people do buy housing using a loan called a mortgage. Very few people just, oh, $200,000? Yeah, I got that in my back pocket. No, usually people need to get some kind of financing. That means a mortgage and mortgage rates uh, go closely together with um, some of the Federal Reserve's lending rates. It's That's not the most direct relationship, and the Federal Reserve can cut rates and mortgages can still remain high for other reasons. But since they raised the rates this year as part of a quantitative tightening campaign to undo some of the crazy amounts that the Federal Reserve has had on its balance sheet to try to stabilize the economy post-2008, well, they're... Every time that they've done the tightening before, something breaks when they get into like, you know, 7 to 10% of the way into the tightening. And so it looks like something is likely to break again. Anyway, um, following this now, I wanted to show this story. This is out of the UK. This is the Telegraph. Mortgage defaults rise at the fastest pace since 2009. Of course, the great financial crisis. Uh, as lenders warn of worse to come. This is by Melissa Lawford. This is a quick article. I just want to read through it. And again, this is the UK, but the Canadian housing market, the US housing market, the UK housing market, as I put on the community post tab recently, the German housing market, there are slight differences between them, but a lot of similarities. Okay, so it says, mortgage defaults have risen at their fastest pace since 2009 as lenders warn over plans to restrict the supply of deals. There has been a spike in the number of homeowners missing their mortgage payments, data from the Bank of England shows, as they battle high interest rates. Problems in the property market have been compounded by banks cutting mortgage lending to households for the second quarter in a row, the bank said, with further reductions expected before the end of the year. So basically, as we go into an environment, an atmosphere of tightening, it becomes harder to get a loan. The banks are uh, looking more stringently at the requirements that they're putting on people. And you know, gone are the days like 10 years ago where they were just handing out mortgages you know, with like one or 2% interest rates. And uh, we're gonna actually look at some of the mortgage fraud that went into that. That was a major driver or like major factor within the price bubble of 05, 06, 07 that led up to the GFC. Uh, global financial meltdown, and it seems to be happening again today, except as I said, the bubble is bigger now than it was in 08, even when adjusted for inflation. So continuing, the proportion of banks reporting an increase in missed payments between in July and September outweighed the number reporting a fall in defaults by a margin of 43.3%, up from 30.9%. This is the highest level since the global financial crisis. Again, that was 15 years ago, not even. Lenders warned that the defaults will increase further over the coming three months. The figures reveal how homeowners are increasingly struggling to meet their mortgage payments as fixed-rate deals expire and they're forced to refinance 
at higher rates. So what does that mean? It means that for a lot of the mortgages, what the lenders were doing was they would give people a deal for like the first few years where they would do a low introductory rate. And then after three or five years or whatever that expires, and then they get you, you have to refinance at whatever the current rate is, or maybe just a specific higher rate. And the difference between your interest payments at 2% and the, and your interest rate payments at 7% are quite substantial. You're talking hundreds of dollars a month. Now, also in the US, there were a number of pandemic era mortgage forbearances and you know other sort of forgiveness and leeway and slack programs that were built in because there was a public health emergency. Well, actually there still is a public health emergency, but they were recognizing the public health emergency at that time and doing interventions such as, you know, okay, people can't work as much right now, so we'll let them slide on the mortgage. Well, so that literally expired one week ago, November, that was the end of it. So come December, just as the student loan payments are restarting in the U.S., also the mortgage forbearance and, and that kind of leeway, that's up. So um, lenders, you know, banks and dedicated lenders and pretty much everybody in real estate does not want to see another situation like 2008. And so they're tr there's all kinds of new things in place where they have to be more stringent when giving out the loan. Is it, and that's like the Dodd-Frank legislation after 2008, where it's like, it came out that in 2006, they were writing mortgages to people that they knew clearly could not pay this stuff back, but it, you know they were just writing mortgages left and right to people. Um, they put in some stuff after 2008 that tightened up the lending requirements. Like you had to, they were trying to raise the floor, in other words, on um, you know people being likely to default on their stuff and then throws everything into kind of crisis. So even with the mortgage forbearances and stuff ending now, they're still required to try to work with people more than they were in 08 and 09 when people were just throwing the keys in the mailbox and walking away. Um, the system realized like, hey, we need to kind of protect against some of that instability and work with people so that people don't end up just walking away from their loans leaving the lender um, hanging. The question to me is, it's one thing uh, when the sun is shining. You know, we had this big storm and then, you know, we looked at all the damage that was caused by it. And when the sun was shining after that storm to build up the walls and build up the protections and say, well, no future storm is ever going to get us. It's one thing to look at that and say, hey, we're doing a great job. The next time a storm comes, we'll be fine. And then the storm actually hits, as it looks like it's about to do in the next year or two. Is your wall actually good enough, or are you just telling yourself that? And I have a feeling they're just telling themselves that. No doubt there have been some efforts, but in the face of the actual pressures and strain that is going to pop, as like right now, job openings are dropping in the U.S., unemployment going up from 3.4% earlier this year to 3.9% more recently. And once that starts going up, it can uh, spike very rapidly. So the labor market cooling off, will it freeze? And if it does, we know that unemployment and mortgage defaults go hand in hand. People lose their jobs, they can't pay for their monthly payments for their housing, and poof, you know, you got a problem. So anyway, uh,
We're going to look at U.S. data in a minute, but first let's finish this article. So lenders warned that defaults will increase further over the coming three months. The figures reveal how homeowners are increasingly struggling to meet their mortgage payments. As we said, as fixed rate deals expire and they're forced to refinance at higher rates. A growing number of banks are reporting losses because of missed mortgage payments. While existing homeowners struggled, buyer demand for new mortgages also fell sharply between June and September as the summer increase in mortgage rates hit buyers' borrowing power. So again, when we say that this is a global system, I mean, it's the exact same stuff that's happening in the U.S. right now. Imperialism, advanced capitalism is a global system. And you see this, it gets, as this, uh, the shining light of imperialism gets refracted through each national prism, it gets expressed a little bit differently, but it has the same overall characteristics of the rising rates after this period of um, inflation, fueled in part by the extremely low interest rates that all of the countries that are big players in the system had to do to rebuild after the GFC in you know 08 to 2011 or so. All right, the net balance of lenders reporting a fall in demand for secured loans to households plunged to negative uh, 55%, a major swing from the positive reading of 52.7 in the previous quarter. So again, sometimes when these things happen, the change can be really swift and severe, as we were saying about unemployment. Lenders warned that demand would continue to fall over the coming three months. Mortgage rates fell through the spring, but soared during the summer after fears that the Bank of England could take further action to tame inflation. Between late May and the end of July, the average rate on a two-year fix jumped from 5.33% to 6.86%, according to Money Facts. And that might not sound like a lot, but it can mean hundreds of dollars a month to somebody, depending on what the base that you're, uh, you know, the principal that you're paying on. Rates have since cooled to 6.38%, exactly what has happened in the U.S., but this is still more than double the 2.38% rate that a buyer could secure on a two-year fix two years ago. So rapidly changing conditions there. The difference is an extra 450 pounds a month on a typical 200-pound loan. So there you go. Um, as I was saying, hundreds of dollars a month. Uh, you know, and the um, 5.33 to 6.86, or even to 6.38, that could be you know the equivalent of like $200 depending on what you're paying. But if you're going from two and a half percent to like six and a half percent, yeah, you're talking about five, six hundred dollars possibly. So, and that's every month. So I mean, you know, and then in the U.S., add in the student loan payments restarting at the exact same time, and just the general you know pain of. Uh, a lot of people feel pressure to do holiday spending and also just, you know, groceries and things like that. The um, prices have gone way up. Ashley Webb, UK economist at Capital Economics, said, quote, Our forecast that mortgage rates will stay above 5% until late 2024 suggests that the weakness in bank lending will weigh more heavily on real activity in the coming quarters, unquote. And that's a key point because it's one thing for the central bank to raise rates. It takes a little bit of time for that the effects of that to filter down to the average proletarian, the average consumer, as they say. Um, and now, you know, it's been five, six months since we've gotten into this territory in the U.S. It is hitting consumers where people are not spending. You may have seen the stories about how Black Friday this year was kind of a bust. And yes, people were doing more shopping online rather than in person. 
but people have kind of run out of money. And that's what even like the Federal Reserve in the United States is noting is that uh, pandemic era, again, when they were recognizing the pandemic, not as we just saw SARS-2 is still circulating in really significant numbers, but pandemic era, quote unquote, cash surpluses that people built up because they were being paid to stay home and they just didn't have as many opportunities to spend that money on you know vacations or whatever else. They kind of saved up maybe a couple extra $10,000, some people, uh, at least people who don't, you know, are have any kind of savings at all. Right now, the um, rate that people are saving at is one of the lowest things, um, you know, of all time. We're, we're at a time right now, I really want to stress this, of record highs and record lows in almost everything. We're at a really extreme point. Something big is going to really break soon, like in the next year or two. So consumers feeling this stuff, it takes a little bit of time before people, you know, when faced with higher prices, run out of their savings or so on. But people are starting to feel it now. And as we go into 2024, and there's also the issue that we've talked about before of corporate bonds, corporations having to refinance their debt. There's a ton of corporate debt, twice as much as there was in 2023, coming in, coming due in 2024. So these corporations now are going to have to refinance at much higher rates. And that leaves them a few options. They can either just pay off the debt if they have the cash, or they may have to um, start laying people off and, you know, doing right sizing, you know, tightening up their expenses. And labor is an expense to a corporation. What does that mean? It means more unemployment. And so we're right on the precipice of a pretty big event. Um, now that the rates are higher, this more restrictive, tightened environment. And, you know, we're getting to the point now, because it has been a few months, where people start feeling it. So um, coming off of that, I want to go into, this is an article from the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, Consumer Finance Mortgage Markets Department, and it's titled Owner Occupancy Fraud and Mortgage Performance. This is by Ronell Elol. Aaron Payne and Sebastian Tilson. And this is back from January. So they do ongoing research into the economy. This is almost more of like a criminology type paper um, in the economic realm. But the quick summary there is occupancy fraud has been suggested as a contributor to the housing bubble. We show it was pervasive and remains present. Fraudulent investors accounted for an outsized share of defaults in the bust. They're talking about the uh, great financial crash and pose a risk should prices decline. So, again, this was at the beginning of the year while there was still kind of a rally in front of the economy. Now that rally is probably gone. But they were saying, um, I mean, this is pretty much they're saying, well, in the bubble of 05 to 07, uh, fraudulent investors and they were doing particular things such as owner occupancy fraud. We'll talk about what that means in just a second. Uh, basically lying on their mortgage applications about what they were going to do with the property. This this played an oversized role in that crash, and it's still happening now, and so it's going to contribute to whatever coming crash there is. That's what they're saying. So the longer summary. We identify occupancy fraud. Borrowers who misrepresent their occupancy status as owner-occupants rather than investors in residential mortgage originations. So origination is where they write the loan. 
Unlike previous work, we show that fraud was prevalent in originations, not just during the housing bubble, but also it persists through more recent times. We also demonstrate that fraud is broad-based and appears in government-sponsored enterprise and bank portfolio loans, not just in private securitization. So there are more government-sponsored loans, like a VA loan or a USDA loan, FHA loans, not just purely private lending. Uh, so yeah, these fraudulent borrowers make up one-third of the effective investor population. Wow. Fraudulent borrowers make up one-third of the effective investor population, according to their research. Occupancy fraud allows riskier borrowers to obtain credit at lower interest rates than they really should. So in other words, if they put down non-fraudulent, accurate financial information on their application, they would have shown up as riskier and the lender would have given them a higher interest rate because it's a, there's a greater chance that they would not pay the loan. Hence, um, when they go to sell that mortgage, because you got to understand mortgages are sold, they're traded around. And if you have a bundle of mortgages there that you want to sell to somebody else as a cash flow revenue stream uh, that people often sell at discounted rates and then there's a profit, uh, it's basically the trade-off of you know, you're paying a certain amount uh, to get that money now, and then the other person gets a higher amount of revenue over time, but they don't get to use that money now. Anyway, so you've got a mortgage there that is riskier. If somebody's, you're trying to sell that to somebody, you've got to have a higher interest rate on it in order to be able to sell that. So anyway, these fraudulent borrowers perform substantially worse than similar declared investors, defaulting at a 75% higher rate. So the ones that do the fraud, their rate is 75% higher uh, in terms of them being more likely to default to, you know, the, the whole thing ends up being a bust. Their defaults are also likelier to be strategic, suggesting that they pose a risk in the face of declining house prices. So what does that mean, likelier to be strategic? Well, they're getting into it not to live in these houses, but to build a portfolio, maybe to use them as rentals. Maybe they're flips. It depends. You know, there's different things you can do as a housing investor. But um, when the house prices start to fall, they will default strategically, meaning it's cheaper to them to dump the property with through a default than it is to um, hang on to it and try to, you know, work through the declining house price. And so this is an issue right now. Twenty three percent of people in the US are underwater currently, or they have negative equity. What that means is that they bought a property at let's say $300,000 and you know that's what the mortgage was written for, but now the value of the property has come down to let's say 250,000. So that means that the thing, they can't walk away from it. If they tried to sell it, they would have to come up with additional money just to cover the loan that they took out. Or in other words, if they sold it at the new rate that it's worth or the new value that it's worth, they wouldn't be able to cover the loan that they took out. So they're kind of stuck with it. So this is a growing issue. And again, this happened in the last bubble as well. We seem to be hitting the top of the real estate market. And there's still a lot of people that say, oh no, this isn't uh, somehow, even though capitalism always works this way, it's not a bubble or it's, it's not even a top. It's just going to stay here and keep going up forever because of supply. Now, supply is tight for sure. But part of the reason supply is tight is investors are sitting on a tremendous amount of vacant properties. 
And then there's also people who are in housing they're not going to be able to afford in a couple of years because of unemployment going up. So that's going to mean forced selling, which is really a bad thing. It means people losing their housing um, that are living in it and, you know, they need somewhere to live. But then, you know, how you would want to actually relieve this um, issue of supply and inventory is make the investors dump those properties. So the investors will start dumping them. And in fact, they are as values start to come down and they also can if they basically liquidate the property and then put that cash into something else that has a higher return they're going to start doing that and in fact they have started doing that so we're, we're at the tail end of a huge bubble and i keep watching this i read a lot of news about this and i've been watching it from week to week because there's a lot of stuff happening in this area right now all right let's continue with this article so we'll just read the first page here and then the bit at the end to see what they're talking about, where they're coming from. So introduction, policymakers and the popular press have cited anecdotal evidence to suggest that one of the contributing causes of the housing bubble was pervasive mortgage fraud. And they uh, cite down there at the bottom uh, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission's 2011 Financial Crisis Inquiry Report. So that was an official finding. Academic work has also verified the existence of mortgage fraud during the housing bubble along several dimensions. Those dimensions include occupancy fraud, inflated prices, unreported second liens, and income misstatement. We discuss the literature in the following section. In this paper, we use a matched credit bureau and mortgage data set to study occupancy fraud, which occurs when mortgage borrowers claim on a new purchase mortgage application that they will be the owner occupants of the property but do not move from their old address, and consequently they hold multiple first liens, as recorded in the credit bureau data. We argue that the fraudulent purchasers that we identify are very likely to be investors, and that accounting for fraud increases the size of the effective investor population by nearly 50%. So in other words, it's people going to the lender and saying, uh, give me a certain deal that you would give to owner occupants, because I'm going to go to this property and I'm going to inhabit it. I'm going to reside in this property. I do have a current property, but I'm going to move out of that. But then they never move out of it. And then they're just the owner of a second property, which they use as a rental or whatever. And they're not allowed to do this. So, and you can see a footnote there. Um, this entails not renting out the property and not intending to sell the property quickly. That's with regard to their old property. So yeah, they're like, oh, I'm going to be an owner occupant. And then they're just not, they stay in their first residence that they already owned. And then this new thing is just a second property. We demonstrate that occupancy fraud is much more widespread and persistent than shown in the previous literature. It was pervasive during the bubble and did not affect just private securitized loans, appearing in both government-sponsored enterprise or GSE guaranteed and portfolio held loans. More significantly, we also show that fraud continues to remain a concern, even appearing in recent originations. So again, this is from 2023. We'll read the uh, bottom there. The footnotes, news organizations have also recently suggested that fraud, including occupancy fraud, may pose a risk as the housing market weakens. See, for example, an article, As Mortgage Market Cools, Fraud Risk Heats Up by Kyle Campbell in American Banker, June 3rd, 2022. Also, we study originations through the end of 2017. We stop at this point to ensure that all loans in our sample have sufficient uh, loan performance information before the onset 
of the COVID epidemic. So this study just goes up to 2017 because things got kind of screwy during COVID um, as far as you know different standards and things like that. So continuing, an important benefit for those undertaking investor fraud was obtaining loan terms that they could not have obtained based on observables or based on the uh, financial data that they put down by declaring themselves as investors, such as higher LTVs, loan to values, and lower interest rates. Fraudulent loans are also riskier. Even after controlling for available characteristics, they perform substantially worse, defaulting at nearly twice the rate of similar declared investors. So there's a lot of people, like I said, trying to say, oh, you know, if there is like a downturn, it's not going to be like 08. People aren't just going to walk away from them. Well, a lot of people still are. So we also show that fraudulent investors are more strategic in their default decisions, further highlighting their risk in the face of declining prices. Our results support the hypothesis that these borrowers undertook fraud to obtain favorable loan terms despite their higher risk. The remainder of the paper is organized as follows. Yada, yada. Let's skip to the conclusion in which they state... We identify widespread occupancy fraud. This is like a 40-page um, study, by the way. We identify widespread occupancy fraud in residential mortgages, both during the housing bubble and also in recent origination vintages. In contrast to previous studies, we are also able to show that occupancy fraud was common in the GSE or the government-sponsored market and in loans held in portfolio, not just in private MBS or mortgage-backed securities. We find that mortgage borrowers who misrepresented their occupancy status performed worse than otherwise similar declared investors. Their default decisions are also more strategic than other borrower types. Our results are economically significant and suggest that such fraud may also pose a risk in future boom-bust cycles. One area for future research is understanding whether behavioral characteristics may help explain why some borrowers were led to speculate in housing markets through fraud. Because, you know, plenty of people speculate in housing markets without putting down fraudulent information on their loan origination paperwork. Uh, these people were compelled to do that. Why? All right. And then just for fun, uh, there's two maps here. This is the geography of occupancy fraud in the first bubble, 2005 to 2007. State level mortgage occupancy fraud rate as a share. So it's proportional to the overall mortgage originations within each state. So where was it highest? California, Nevada. It's not even across the um, the entire country is the point. Like, for example, Montana uh, had a much lower proportion of fraud. And some of the other states like New York, New Jersey, Florida had higher rates, of, higher proportion was fraudulent. So that was in 2005 to 2007. Now, Engage your visual memory here. I'm going to put up another chart that shows more recently. Now here's geography of occupancy fraud 2008 to 2017. We see some of the same states like California, Nevada, um, and then some of the states that were darkest before are either um, still darkest, like New Jersey is still at the highest level, and then some of the ones like Florida and New York are downgraded to like moderate but overall, it's somewhat similar. Although, again, I mentioned Montana. That's higher uh, during this later time period. So anyway, when we look at things, it's important to remember most things in capitalism occur unevenly. So even though we can say overall, you know, there's this occupancy fraud, it's not going to be everywhere at the same rates 
all the time. So it's important to break things down, whether we're talking about people and demographics like race and gender and other things like that. Not everything hits evenly across all of those demographics. And then geography is another uh, you know, data point that you can factor in there as did it occur evenly um, across that. I mentioned also the slowing job growth and negative equity or you know the underwater 23%. Um, and then, so when you get underwater on a mortgage, let me go back to the main screen, what can you do with that? What that means is that you can't really sell the thing without losing money. So, um, you know, if you have money to spare, then you could um, just cover it that way and deal with the mortgage, or you can rent out that property. Um, you know, of course, we don't want to encourage landlordism, but it is under capitalism, it is a possibility that people do. Problem here is that although rents have been at all-time highs recently, they have been falling nationwide, uh, almost 1% per month for about six months. So there's been about a 5% decline in rent um, recently, and that's likely to keep coming down. So, you know, as far as people underwater on that purchase, uh, you know, few options. So again, I think for me, when I was talking about after 2008, they told themselves, we'll build this wall higher and stronger, and the next time a storm comes, we'll be fine. Yeah, I mean, we'll see when the storm hits, and we are about to see soon. But on the subject of um, slowing job growth, that the job, number of job openings are dropping, and unemployment has gone up about half a percentage point. Once it starts going up, it can go up sharply, um, you know, in a short period of time. Well, one of the other things going on there is a lot of people were hired in the last year after the Great Resignation, um, when labor was comparatively strong and wages were higher. Well, as some of this financial pain hits companies and they're having to refinance their debt at higher wages, so suddenly that's a big chunk of money that they come up with, it's another expense, they try to cut other expenses and wages again are one of them. So they're gonna try to renegotiate or cut wages. Now, if unionization continues, we did see kind of a record year for labor, although labor is still, organized labor is still very weak, historically speaking. Um, it is starting to come back a little bit from like an all-time low recently. And we saw like a lot of strike wave activity um, this summer and just in general, I mean, you're here listening to a communist talk about the economy that wouldn't have been happening probably so much, you know, five or 10 years ago. But, uh, you know, and it's not just this channel, it's others like people are becoming class conscious, more radicalized. Again, there is a drive to rebuild the labor movement, which is absolutely critical. It's a key component of building class consciousness. And they are the main proletarian class organizations, labor unions. Not all labor unions are created equally. Some are far more concessionist and, you know, they roll over for capitalists and they don't want to end capitalism. Others are more radical and militant. Anyway, but if unionization continues and there's a strong push for workers to combine together and defend the higher wages that they got in the last couple of years, then that can put the pressure on the companies uh, in, in, you know, put the hurt on them in an even bigger way where they're going to have to sell off assets. If they can't cut wages, if the workers prevent them from cutting wages by unionizing striking, taking whatever industrial actions they need to take in order to say, no, we run this place, not you. Well, then the company has to look somewhere else 
to come up with that money and to, you know, so they may end up selling off superfluous pieces of property that they own or whatever else. And that can help drive prices even lower as that forced selling and that investors sell off continues. So again, I think we're really at an interesting time here. And if you get up to speed on this stuff, it is going to be worth it as we attempt to do. You know, I think um, both the vanguard, the communist movement is really not there yet. And then the working class as a whole is still a little bit dreamy, starting to get a bit more grounded and militant. I don't know how much we can do in this cycle, but the faster that we can get up to speed on these things, it can help with strategy and um, you know helping people to think their way through actions that they can take as the next downturn sets in. Whether it's a big 2008 crash, whether it's not quite as big, I think it will be on the larger side. Whether it's not quite as big, there's going to be one and... Um, I think there's massive potential for it to get like really out of hand quickly, but it can help working people uh, come together in our working class organizations to strategize our way through this, to do local political initiatives that respond to the needs of people in particular areas, whether that's, you know, raising the minimum wage or rent control or other kind of things that um, people in different localities put on the ballot in their state or city or whatever. That kind of thing is going to be crucial for continuing this push and again everything that we can do to rebuild the labor movement is kind of the cornerstone of all of it but i did uh before we get back into the chat and then do that for the rest of the stream i did also want to pull up a couple of comments and i'm not going to put these on the screen because people were asking about oh you know i realize there's a couple other things too anyway um not going to put this on the screen because uh people some people had um, issues that they wanted to have their info remain more private. But anyway, I got a couple of questions recently about participating in a revisionist party or more of a small Marxist-Leninist party. So again, turning to the vanguard now. So here's the first question. Uh, this one's a little bit different from that, but it's it's the question of joining stuff and realizing that the options aren't great right now as far as parties and organizations. And I feel your pain this is something that I have struggled to come up with, you know, something people ask me this a lot and I've been trying to come up with um, something to recommend. So let me read the first one out. I have a question. Actually, you know what? I can put this first one on the screen because they did post it uh, publicly somewhere. So let me let me do that. OK, I have a question. I want to participate in a political party and have two choices a social democratic party or a Marxist-Leninist party. The reason I lean for the social democratic party is because the Marxist-Leninist party is way too small. And honestly, I haven't seen them grow in 30 years that I've read about their history. It's a group of three youngsters, which I'm too old to join, or I can join the adult group, which is 10 guys in their 50s and up. I'm in my 30s. The age is not the issue. It's just that these guys have been doing this for 30 years, and I can't believe this is how far they got. It makes me question the entire party and their leadership. The last thing I want to be involved with is a cult-like party. The other party is the third biggest in the country. Typical Sockdem stuff. The reason I'm inspired to join them is because of Black Red Guard videos that he made about how, a good experience, uh, how good of an experience he had joining his local Sockdem party. And so we did share that on the community tab. I was talking about why would a Maoist join DSA. There are Sockdems in DSA. There are also socialists in DSA. I just want to point that out. I think that my basic ML theory is solid and that I can't be swayed into revisionist points of view 
or Sockdem views, but I would see it as an opportunity to do something real. And that was, again, with the Black Red Guard video, was why would a Maoist join DSA? It's because where, that's where the actual work is happening. Like I was just talking about people putting things on the ballot or organizing a tenants union or stuff like that. Like, they're, they're actually doing that stuff. But I would see it as, as an opportunity to do something real. I've been individually doing things and joining other groups, but uh, non-strictly Marxist, simply because I can't find any near me in my country, and that's the case in most places. At this stage of socialism, recovering from decades of Cold War propaganda, I don't know what's best. It's either joining the Sokdems while maintaining my Marxist-Leninist views privately and doing something or staying home and frankly keep pushing propaganda in social media, which is discouraging as hell. Yeah, I mean, we've had success building socialism for all here, because we're putting out, I think, quality resources for people to use while also being engaging. But yeah, I would imagine if, um, you know, you were not doing that type of thing and it wasn't taking off in the way that we were doing here, that would be very frustrating. Yeah. And uh, that's, and it's not a criticism. I think I've just been extremely dogged about this. And this is also not the first thing that I've done, but it is the first thing that I've done that got really successful. So, yeah. Um, the Marxist-Leninist party was decently sized and strong in like the 1930s. Long story short, after decades of being basically outlawed, and then in the 70s they got a legal status again. Anyhow, decades of liberal and right-wing governments have left the people in my country extremely afraid of communism. Anyhow, what makes me doubt joining them is that they seem kind of secluded and extremely small. They have a Facebook and not much else. And again, from their group meetings, pictures, and the small number of members, I don't know if I'd be making a mistake by joining them. I don't want to deal with a cult. It's just, I don't know if I'm being too harsh. They may not be a cult. It's just that the size of the group makes me think twice and how outdated they seem. Their online presence is pretty low effort, in my opinion. Okay, excellent question. I think you're thinking critically about this in good ways. I, at this point, am leaning towards, you know, and as I have been recommending to people, especially people with less real-world experience, do something that is larger in size and more active, that may be more of a big tent left thing. No, I don't think that the big tent left is going to carry us across the finish line, but at this particular stage of things, I think it's where people can get in, build class consciousness, engage in some real struggle, and network with other people. Like in the case of DSA, if the left wing of DSA were to split off, for example, and like go in the direction of forming an actually Marxist party, um, it would still be the largest Marxist organization in the country. So even if you head up to that point and then eventually there's a split, you know, where the, the all the people that want to tail the Democratic Party go to the right and then everybody else goes to the left, you're still the largest group in the United States and, and that wouldn't have been able to be built without that initial big tent stage. So that plus, I see groups like DSA doing useful work in the real world, and I can't deny that, whereas you don't see the same at this stage from the Vanguard. But this goes back to another point I like to make. The Vanguard, contrary to what anarchists say, uh, or other, quote, anti-Vanguardists, which would really be any anti-Leninist, so I guess you get some left comms in there as well, who in the end, in my opinion, wind up sounding like anarchists half the time anyway. Um, the vanguard is just a relative term. It means the most class-conscious portion of the working class. So there is always a vanguard. It's just not necessarily very organized, and it's not necessarily 
well, very good in general. You know, it's not necessarily very class conscious. It hasn't really done the studies necessarily, or it could be. You know, you can have a good Vanguard or a bad Vanguard, but overall, it's a reflection of where the class is and where the movement is as a whole, because it's really just the kind of head of the movement. It's a relative term for the most class conscious and most studied in history and economics and everything of the working class movement. So you can either, you know, you have a bad movement, you're probably gonna have a bad vanguard. If you have a better movement that's a lot more active, gaining class consciousness month over month, you're probably gonna have a better vanguard generated out of that. And then that vanguard will realize the need to get organized as a party and a vanguard party and so on. So I do think we need to rebuild the labor movement in the left generally, get a lot more activity going, a lot of class struggle going, this will generate a better vanguard. And of course, we're trying to also directly sell people on the need to organize as a vanguard. And that's why we're doing this channel and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, there will be, you know, I, my communist consciousness was generated out of, you know, a fair amount of time of attempting different political things and being involved in labor organizing and then reaching the conclusion that, hey, I should go read that Marxist stuff again because it was the only thing that made any sense out of what I've read from the anarchist, the ANCOM, the libertarian, whatever, you know, I kind of uh, been exposed to it all. And I was like, none of the other stuff works. Let's go back to Marxism. And here we are. And I think that that is true. And I think it's because my political vision and understanding matured and, you know, my class consciousness grew and here we are uh, teaching communism. So Again, I think more and more people are going down that road. You're probably somewhere along that road if you're listening to this right now and listening to similar channels. So anyway, that's kind of my take on it. It's very similar to what Black Redguard said. And, you know, I've gotten a lot of shit for that over the years. The bottom line is, um, <clears throat> well, you know what? Let's go to the next comment. So I'm going to take this off the screen for a second. The next comment um, expands on this from a slightly different angle. But it's like having not really good um, options for, for joining things. So let me, I'm going to read this because they, they wanted this to be uh, more private. Hi, I have a question either for a future stream or just for here. They were DMing me, whichever you think is better. I've been an anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninist for about three years and have previously been involved with various smaller sized ML organizations of that ilk. Recently, however, due to problems with small organizations such as that I joined, um, I got involved with a larger party, but which is revisionist. So in other words, this is within even the specifically Marxist-Leninist world. There will a lot of times be a small anti-revisionist group, and then there will be a large revisionist group. So, you know, this is like, I would put CPUSA in the larger revisionist party. And okay, there's more people there, so there's going to be some more stuff happening. But again, revisionist positions. And... I've explained this many times before, but I'll say it again. I would literally rather see people join a broad left organization that does not purport to be Marxist-Leninist, that is, you know, broad left, like DSA, or I've mentioned like the Green Party. Green Party has slightly different issues. I think they have more kind of contrarian libertarian stuff going on in there. But anyway, I would rather pe see people join an active broad left group that does not purport to be Marxist-Leninist, than to join a largish revisionist Marxist-Leninist party that does purport to be Marxist-Leninist, but ends up 
being badly revisionist anyway, and then telling the Democrats. So in other words, if you're going to be in a group that engages in liberalism, at least pick the group that isn't pretending to be Marxist-Leninist while engaging in liberalism. And, you know, then from there, just pick the one that's doing the most useful, practical work, meet some other good comrades, get their contact info, and then, you know, maybe you can build something in the future, you know, a few years down the line. You got to think medium and long term here in this struggle. You cannot just think short term. All right. So they're they're like, I've been involved with very tiny anti-revisionist Marxist-Leninist groups. And then there's the opportunity to join a larger but revisionist Marxist-Leninist group. What do I do? Let's continue with the comment. Um, so they've decided to join the larger revisionist party. I don't feel very comfortable with that decision as I have a lot of criticisms of the group. However, I was thinking it would be better than being unorganized. And at least it's a way to continue getting organizational experience, etc. Particularly as the branch in the city I'm in is very active and seems to do good work locally. Do you think that joining revisionist organizations like this in the short term can be useful or is it a bad idea? And I think that they followed up a little bit. So, yeah, it's like there was about, you know, 50 active members in their area of this party. However, the line of the party is awful. It focuses on electoralism and, you know, has other kinds of revisionist leanings. So, yeah, we'll leave it at there to um, leave out identifying info. I mean, my particular take on this is, as I've said many times, I'd rather see people join an active broad left thing and then study Marxism-Leninism privately. Or, you know, you can find a study group and, and there are Discord servers and there's this channel that serves as kind of a public-facing semi-study group and other things. There's ways you can still keep advancing your study of the international communist movement and of Marxism-Leninism in an anti-revisionist way that actually satisfies your need to keep studying it and know that there are thousands, tens of thousands of other people out there engaged in the same thing. At some point, we will all come together, whether that happens immediately, whether that happens a little bit further down the line, know that this movement is growing and that it will, um, it it will come together. So I think at this stage, it is safer for people to be in just broad-based things that are more active get the experience, do some practical work, help build class consciousness and intensify class struggle across broader swaths of the population. But as far as the temptation to get into something Marxist that is pushing, and I'm not just talking about uh, disagreeing on one particular issue, even if you think it's an important issue, then to get into an organization that has like a really consistent trend of revisionist and even in some cases reactionary positions. Like a number of the British parties were doing uh, anti-trans stuff. And, you know, you don't want to be anywhere near helping that out, especially as if the goal is ultimately we need to resell the working class on Marxism-Leninism and on communism. Time that you spend in a revisionist organization helping them push a revisionist line, it's not helping the PR at all. And that is probably more of a setback to the movement than anything else. So uh, unless you're in one of those organizations specifically to fight, you know, them on those lines, um, you know, I, I don't know. And we're happy to discuss this more in chat that people, uh, somebody had sent in uh, as a comment. 
So they say, on another note, as a Gen Z person, I can vouch when I say a lot of the anti-communist propaganda left over from the Cold War has been far less effective on my generation. We grew up in a post-9-11 America and basically never got the chance to buy into the false promises of the American dream. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the rising sympathies towards socialist and potentially communist ideas within the younger generation. Yes, I think that we are faced with a very ripe opportunity for helping people cultivate class consciousness by leading them in struggle. That's really what this comes down to, and especially rebuilding the labor movement. People are getting just absolutely screwed right now by you know their, their work situations and everything. And especially younger people are very receptive to the unionization push. It's been, there have been a lot of um, barriers to doing organizing for a long time, but there's more interest than ever. And I think that you know, with the kind of strike activity that's been going mainstream again this year, it is good for, you know, it's kind of effective advertising that, yes, you can take matters into your own hands and organize with other people, you know, co-workers and other people in your industry and do something effective. Like, this actually can be done. So, yeah, it, there's a real opportunity and... You know, we're trying to do what we can running this channel and doing the kind of outreach that we're doing. Um, everyone else should be doing everything that they can do as well um, to, to take advantage of this moment because we are going into another crisis of capitalism and uh, probably a pretty big one. So lots of opportunities to develop uh, anti-capitalist and specifically communist talking points right now. All right. Let us uh, thank the patrons real quick, and then we will get into the chat. So uh, pretty much up to date, actually, um, patron thing on the screen. I still have to update people's colors. Um, blue names have been supporting for over three years, green names over two years, yellow names over one year. I have to update that for this month still. Patreon's a little weird about actually updating people's statuses in the first week of the month, but I can get back into that soon after this. Anyway, patreon.com slash socialism for all and buymeacoffee.com slash socialism for all. This channel is non-commercial and viewer supported. We don't run ads. We don't run sponsorships. We're just viewer supported. So if you like this content, you can do a recurring donation on patreon.com slash socialism for all or buymeacoffee.com slash socialism for all, as well as a one-time donation. Easy to do on buymeacoffee.com. Just chip in whatever you'd like to do. You can support for a few dollars a month or more whatever you see fit. Uh, th these donations are super helpful for me keeping a steady uh, stream going here of consistent effort being put into the channel. Let me add as well that uh, here is what you will be funding in the coming readings. Of course, we're doing the streams and of course we are doing the, well, we will be shortly adding in the cooking with S4A that we've been brainstorming and workshopping for a while. Um, but we've also... Got these upcoming audiobooks. So the very next thing going up, currently in process, is it's a longer one. Statement of 81 Communist and Workers Parties from 1960. That is pretty much a three-year update of the last one that we posted, um, the statement from 1957. Following that, on Khrushchev's Phony Communism and its Historical Lessons for the World from 1964 by Mao Zedong. This is part of the Sino-Soviet split, Sino being China. Um, China and the Soviet Union had a big falling out from the mid-50s to mid-60s and got pretty escalated, actually. Um, and then the next reading, the demagogy of the Soviet revisionists cannot conceal their traitorous countenance, from 1969 by Enver Hoxha, 
leader of uh, Party of Labor of Albania, who sided with China in the Sino-Soviet split, followed by really the thing that started all of this particular subseries off, Palestine Belongs to Palestinians, is a collection of readings from 1970 to 1982 by Enver Hoxha, collected and published by the November 8th Publishing House, and then followed by the Marxist-Leninist Movement and the World Crisis of Capitalism from 1979, which talks about what it says it talks about, also talks about Palestine again, but is not featured in the previous collection by Hoxha. After this, we will have a couple of other things, but that's as far as I want to kind of um, commit to on record. I've done this before uh, of saying we're going to do upcoming things and then something else gets in the way. I'm really, really uh, making more of an effort now as we enter into the fourth year of this of learning how much I can actually declare I'm sticking to a list and how much flexibility I need to retain as far as, uh, you know, things come up. The whole Israel-Palestine thing really um, got escalated this year. And, and by the way, uh, I've mentioned Democracy Now! as far as they've been doing excellent coverage of Israel's assault on Palestine. And uh, that continues. I mean, they've been doing excellent work over there, as have other places. People have mentioned Novara Media, Media Middle East Eye, and others. Um, just want to give you know, credit to especially um, U.S.-based people for um, covering Palestine more correctly. Absolutely hideous, hideous stuff that the racist settler colonial project of Israel is doing. And um, hence, trying to do some readings about how did we get to this point. I think that the Hoja collection from 70 to 82 really speaks to when there was a more Marxist presence in there. What was their relationship with the Soviet Union? And how did the Soviet Union in those days maybe undermine those efforts somewhat? So it's definitely a critical look at Soviet relations with Palestine. And... Uh, Looking forward to getting into that, but you can't really understand Hoja's criticisms of Soviet revisionism without knowing more of that backstory. That's why we've, we've been doing these other readings, and they are, a lot of them are longer readings, you know, an hour or two hours, and it does just really take me a while to get through all those, but um, we will be chugging through these as rapidly as possible. All right, now let us go into the chat. I actually did skip one more current event thing, but I want to get to the chat. Somebody asked me about the Venezuela-Guiana situation. We'll get we'll get back to that in a minute. All right. So, um, someone in the chat posting a lot of stuff. We talked about this last week about the right-wing government in New Zealand, and they posted a bunch of links here. I can probably share some of these on the community tab. Actually, recently got more organized on sharing stuff on the community tab. You know, it's like we're coming up to the end of the third year of doing this channel. I am continually finding new ways to improve and expand what we're doing. You know, we're now on Substack and Medium. That's coming out of doing more written stuff on the community stuff, which I couldn't fit completely into the streams. It kept spilling over everywhere, every week and being frustrating. Then I started writing it and I was like, oh, this is actually working. So again, channel keeps growing and expanding. I really want to thank the people who have been supporting it. It's, it's exciting to me to see um, how it's been growing. But anyway, the New Zealand stuff. So we covered um, in the stream that has yet to be posted, the uh, right-wing New Zealand government coming in, talking about rates of disability being caused by COVID, euthanasia and not listening to disabled people, kicking disabled people off of benefits. Um, also... 
yeah, just a lot of euthanasia related things uh, about this right wing government that basically it was more of a conservative mainstream party that in order to form a government coalition started tapping like extreme right New Zealand parties that were deeply unpopular. So I'll get that posted as soon as I can. But thank you for these additional links. I will definitely um, we were DMing about this and I'll definitely share more of these. So basically, they're saying the ACT Party in New Zealand wants to make it. That was one of the smaller right-wing parties that got tapped to participate in this government coalition. They want to make it so you only receive health care if you contribute to capitalism and can prove you are of worth. Death panels. Yeah, that's fascist. They're also repealing uh, anti-smoking laws to give tax cuts to landlords. There's more bad stuff, uh, but it's hard to know where to stop. I just got off work delivering packages for UPS. Yesterday, my driver let me run all of his packages, like all of them, and only at hour eight, when overtime kicks in, did it occur to me that his rate puts him at $66 an hour while I pull 33. It was fucked up and made me want to read Capital. That is fucked up. Yeah, there's all kinds of stuff going on with UPS and the kind of different rates for different... Got to straighten that stuff out. Yeah, it was a good stream last time, the four-hour stream, and I really enjoyed the food talk, hence why I was like, oh, I'll just do Cooking with S4A as a second stream. That'll be fine. But I trying to find four hours to edit that is, uh, yeah. The compressed light-dark range in winter really kills my sleep. I try to compensate by automating a light bulb to turn on in the morning to give my brain more of a wake-up call. Um... Or, yeah, it kills your wakefulness. Well, it screws up your sleep-waking cycle. I get what you're saying. I know. I try to, like, leave a curtain open to just get as much, like, early morning sun as possible. But I'm more of a night owl, so it's just hard where you don't get as much. <laughs> like, you get even less of the daylight. So, yeah. Um, after my several meltdowns over watching the ongoing genocide in Palestine, I realized that mental health is essential for any kind for people to be any kind of use to the cause. Yeah, absolutely. I was talking with another comrade that um you know, I would chat with regularly and mental health was an issue where they were also having, you know, a lot of sort of just crying and stuff from uh reading all this news and they had to kind of bow out from it for a while. And yeah, I think a lot of people do hit a wall. I was, um, it was worse for me when I was using Twitter. I've really cut Twitter out. I, I make announcements on Twitter and that's it. I don't go out on the timeline and I definitely don't argue with people on there anymore. Don't really need to, can just run the channel. They come to me, they argue with me. Um, but yeah, I like back in the spring, I was really hitting a point of just like, why do I do this? And, uh, what's the point and all that. I kind of overcame that hump and, I don't know, things got a lot better, and really cutting Twitter out, it was just complete fucking overload, and I feel like I'm still able to keep up with the news, I use Blue Sky now instead, much less violent experience, uh, using Twitter is kind of like being in a car accident for three hours straight, yeah, much less violent experience, much less jarring, can still keep up to date with the news, there's Mastodon as well, and, uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I guess I, I re-leveled out whatever the difference is and we're proceeding apace again. Okay, so about COVID, five people in my close vicinity got COVID around two weeks ago. Two teachers, it's freaking scary, absolutely. 
Another comment, I'm having a bit of a rough one. I think I have COVID, but I have no more sick time for the year and I can't afford to take the hit. So that is your employer. I mean, definitely wear a mask because otherwise you're going to get everybody around you at work sick. And that's your employer contributing to the spread of COVID as well. Um, I don't know what kind of industry you work in, but like I know in the food world, uh, if you have certain illnesses, you are not allowed to work. And yet, you know, it's like policy now that people just have to work through COVID. So anyway, um, I've been losing my mind over the Palestinian genocide. It's extremely, uh, it's horrible. And I've been following current events and the shit show uh, for 20 years and nothing has hit like this. Maybe it's the Marxist lens that I'm viewing it through. I've never understood the situation better, but I've also never been more upset. Yeah, um, you know, the kinds of actions that we can do here are limited. Everything that you can do to put pressure on U.S. politicians to make Israel back off and stop supporting Israel, do it. Everything you can do, do it. A KN95 mask has kept me safe in the events industry. I'm usually the only person masked out of hundreds of workers and guests. Good for you. So yeah, I mean, N95, KN95, I find the N95s make a better seal. And for people who, I mean, if the KN95s make a better seal for you, then by all means. Um, the difference is KN95 is a Chinese standard, N95 is a U.S. government standard. So I have heard that there are issues with KN95s because the U.S. doesn't regulate them. In the U.S., they're being counterfeit KN95s, um, not because it's Chinese, but because it's a different country that isn't going to take action on that. But in the U.S., N95 is actually regulated by a government agency, NIOSH. So the N95s are probably less likely to be counterfeit. Plus, for me, they just fit better, so I use the N95s. But whatever you use, they're the same filtration standard in the end. It's just KN95 is a different um, country's filtration standard. But the, the 95 is 95% uh, or better particulate matter gets filtered, and it's useful for um, filtering out even viral particles. So hence useful for COVID. And I haven't gotten sick in a while, you know, knock wood. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to keep it that way by continually masking. And I have noticed, you know, in the last few months, especially getting more people staring and things like that. No one has dared comment on it, but getting more kind of, you know, stink eye from people. And I just literally look at them like, you're the one that's going to die, not me. So, you know, you can like give me your scorn all you like. I need to protect myself. And if you have a problem with that, you know, enjoy your problem, <laughs> like keep having it. If it's going to make you feel superior in your state of uh, uncertainty and uh, ignorance. But, you know, we do need to spread the message like people need to mask in the short term. There's going to be people who reject that for one reason or another. I'm sorry that you're putting your health on the line and you are going to get sick sooner or later and probably more than once. And one of those uh, infection events is going to result in a serious problem for you and possibly a permanent disability you know you can avoid all of that if you just wear a fucking mask so anyway aside from the ongoing genocide in palestine there's also covid surges this decade stinks well we're only three years in so uh, oh well i have to accept reality and act accordingly then there's the housing bubble yeah the housing and everything bubble gramsci used the term interregnum i think that gramsci's term would apply 
Um, well, so like the, the interregnum is, yeah, it's the period between reigns. Um, I mean, we're, we're in the kind of post 2008, if you want to call it an interregnum, maybe, um, that, oh, things are back to normal and recovering. But I think that there is going to be kind of widespread panic after it crashes again. And people realize that those, all of those soothing messages, lies, just blatant fucking lies that, oh, the economy is recovering and we've regulated it where this is never going to happen again. Well, if it does happen again, I think that that's very likely, then people are going to go, oh, I can't trust anything that they say. Now, maybe they should already be on that page because I don't trust anything that they say. And that started for me around, I don't know, the mid 2000s at least. But um the crisis of confidence in the existing institutions of the society we have, which is bourgeois or capitalist society, which is based on the exchange of commodities and the exploitation of the proletariat. The government is bourgeois in character. It is of and for the bourgeoisie or capitalist class that lives off of investments, basically, and, and extracting surplus value from others. Um, you know, that's having that crisis of confidence, people need to know where to go from that. Okay, I don't believe in what's going on now. I don't trust them. <clears throat> I don't want to give them my support. What do I support instead? And this is where we need to build the class consciousness and the labor movement and say, you believe in the working class and our movement and our ideology is socialism. And that's, that's what we need to uh, put out there because otherwise they just go for these fakers, the Tucker Carlson's and other people who are like, you know, oh, the current elites just don't care enough. Give me and my faction of elites, you know, we need better elites. That's that's basically like the the right wing populist thing. Oh, we need better elites that can pretend to be folksy and care about their uh, wage slaves better. No, I mean, they're never going to do that because capitalism just runs on its own logic of maximum return on investment. And they couldn't care about you and take better care of you really if they wanted to. So, uh, you know, market pressures continually force them in one direction, one direction only. So you get it from the kind of sock Dems, the Kyle Kalinskis, we just need to elect better Democrats. No. And then you get the Tucker Carlson's. It's like we need you just need better elites of some kind or another. No, we need to end the system entirely. We need a shift in which class rules society. We need a shift toward the working class. We have to build up the working class's strength and organization in order to actually do that. So, yeah. Um, on the interest rate teaser rates, the same thing is happening with 0% APR credit card promos. Yes. And th the reason that they have to really throw out these um, these deals now, like so another one in housing right now is summed up in the expression, marry the house, date the rate. What does that mean? It means that you buy the house at a less than desirable interest rate banking on the fact that you're going to refinance it at a lower rate later. And there's insurance companies that are now, or not insurance companies, uh, lenders that are offering, <clears throat> even that are guaranteeing that you get your loan now and they will guarantee to cover the cost for your refinancing later uh, when the rates come down. The only reason that they would do that, so is first of all it's it's not really to help you it's to drum up business for them in uh, the worst housing market ever for buyers you know this is like the worst time to buy a house in the united states in history 
um, supremely unaffordable. Things are like at least 30% overvalued kind of across the board. And there will be some places that are less and some places that are more. On average, it's about 30% overvalued. So you got a $300,000 house that really should be like $200,000 and, and so on down. But anyway, so the lenders trying to sucker people into jumping the gun and acting now before the crash. Uh, they're like, yeah, we'll guarantee that you'll refinance it. We'll even pay the cost because usually it would cost you a few thousand dollars to do that. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, that's there's fine print to that and everything else. And uh, you see it around the corner. The sharks are getting hungry because uh, buyers are not getting in the water enough and um, and taking their loan. So, yeah, you see them making all these kinds of deals, trying to trick people into uh, getting into a bad situation financially. And the good news is that, you know, the sun is probably going to rise within the next year or two with a big price decline. But until then, you know, they're trying to just snag as many people as they can. And they're getting pretty desperate. So, yeah. There's a lot more short-term profit and fake solutions than real ones. Yeah, we call this grifting for the most part. In New Zealand, we haven't had a crash. The house prices keep getting more and more insane. The government also gives citizenship to rich people if they simply spend a large chunk of money here. Yeah, a lot of countries do that where they have like a fast track to citizenship for investors. So yeah, New Zealand is not alone in doing that. And it's so... Like I said, in the United States, it's regional. Like some areas are starting to crash and starting to decline. Other areas are not. And like Germany um, peaked two years ago when a lot of other markets peaked. They've just been in steady decline since then. But the prices are so high and the mortgage rates are so high um, that they still need to decline further with the high interest rates that it, nobody's buying a house still. So the prices need to come down a lot more. And in the meantime, it's putting gigantic pressure on the rental market there. We did a thing on the community tab about that. So it's manifesting slightly differently in different areas. But like you, you will have that crash eventually. Because again, the capitalist investment system is international. And there are international investors that hold real estate in New Zealand. And as the financial situation changes and they can get better money somewhere else and they start to see... Uh, values come down also they're gonna sell off those properties and put the money into something else that makes them better return on investment in the meantime they're tying up vast swaths of personal single-family real estate that people need to live in and they're just fucking holding them vacant it's like you know holding them for ransom terrible situation despite recently putting a big down payment on a car i'm realizing how overly expensive full coverage is I'm now paying two sixty a month for full coverage and three fifty in car payments. Yeah, so that's a significant chunk of um, you know you're paying what is that? It's like sixty percent ish um, of of the amount that you're paying just on the car for insurance. On top of my fifteen fifty rent, this leaves me with like eleven hundred dollars a month, and I have a job that requires a college degree. Everything is so expensive. Yeah, we are in the everything bubble. Housing is kind of at the center of that, but it is everything. Actually, I'm mean, speaking of the car market. Just go on YouTube, look up um, car market bad or whatever, you know, car market crazy or whatever. The car market's doing the same thing. So, yeah. Not to intimate any defeatism, but uh, is this Stalin quote legit? Quote, what would happen if capital succeeded in smashing the Republic of Soviets? 
It would set in an era of the blackest reaction in all the capitalist and colonial countries. The working class and oppressed peoples would be seized by the throat. The positions of international communism would be lost, unquote. That's a heavy quote if it's legit. I hate capitalism more than anything. I think, I think it's... I would call this a period of extremely dark reaction. We're experiencing a global fascist convergence. Again, that New Zealand government um, being a prime example of it. And if Biden gets defeated in the U.S., we're going to see that again. I mean, to be clear, Biden sucks. Biden is right wing. Biden is awful, even by Democratic Party standards. Um, but when they get the full bore crazies back into office from the Republican Party, it's going to go from awful to extremely awful. And uh, yeah, I mean, this this is now the sort of spectrum that we live in, you know, um, the right wing and the extreme right wing. Those are the mainstream options in the U.S. And, you know, again, a lot of people do a lot of mental gymnastics trying to do the lesser evil game there. And it's like, you know what? You don't even really it just goes back and forth between the two parties because the masses in general hate them both. And it's literally just a question every election of which party is slightly less hated and which party is slightly more hated just based on what happened in the last few years. But people hate both of the parties. So, you know, there's a lot of people that like really, really expend much oxygen and much typing on one party or the other. They're part of a system. Those two parties work together. They're part of the same system. And again, it's just one floats up to the top and then the other one does and it just sort of alternates because it's just a question of like which one is more hated at any particular point in time but they are part of the same system and funded by the same basic interests yeah no you, i mean so somebody was talking about the stalin quote that he may have been overstating it was obviously a huge setback but you can't stop the movement obviously yeah i mean you're you're not ever going to stop proletarians from wanting to end our exploitation but in practical terms, it does mean politically capitalists gain the advantage for several decades. And then you got to rebuild everything and it, you lose a lot of time, you know. Quote from Enver Hoxha, Deng Xiaoping brought out the program of the four modernizations. So this was the late 70s cap, uh, capitalist turn in China when they did the, quote, market reforms um, and put an end to the Cultural Revolution, liquidated all that mass of cadres promoted to the organs of state power the party and the army by this revolution and replace them with the men of the blackest reaction who have been exposed and condemned in the past. There you go. I mean, and that was prior 1978 and the Chinese beginnings of capitalist restoration was prior to the USSRs. I mean, the USSR had already been going kind of down that road for a while uh, to where, you know, under Gorbachev, they started allowing like foreign investment in Soviet enterprises even as like the dominant um, interest in the like, controlling interest. But uh, they weren't at that point yet. And I don't know, just terrible to see. Appreciate the mods. Want to give a shout out to the mods. Brit, Health Revolt. Is Health Revolt here, here today? I haven't seen Health Revolt, I don't think. And uh, Shakespeare, keeping things moderate. As a small tangent, TV networks such as HGTV, so that's Home and Garden TV, which, um, yeah, I remember a while ago going to a bank and they had, I mean, obviously they dealt in mortgages. They would have HGTV on every single time I went in the bank because they were just trying to get people 
thinking about, oh, my dream house, and I got to do all this interior decorating and take out loans and make it so lovely and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, uh, TV networks like that definitely aren't helping anything either. I have a family member that's in love with those dumbass house flipping shows. Those things should be fucking crushed. That should be illegal. Absolutely. Regarding Stalin, I've been surprised by what I perceive as positive treatment about him on your channel. Yes. Uh, is there a good frequently asked questions or 101-like resource that answers the most popular arguments against Stalinism, making Stalin out to be a, quote, red Hitler, etc.? I don't know that... Yeah, so the very next response, Finnish Bolshevik is another YouTube channel that has a lot of videos that, stover, that cover the Trotskyist stuff that attacks Stalin. Um, I would look at some anti-Trotskyist stuff first, because that is kind of the main source of anti-Stalin things. Stalin achieved what was basically next to impossible. Um, well, yeah, so the breakup the, of the Comintern is a complicated issue, but I honestly cannot believe how much Stalin achieved. He gave everything, caring not for himself, an exceptional leader, an exceptional comrade. Yeah, breaking up the Comintern was a horrible decision, and the reasons given were laughable. Sadly, both Mao and Hoxha accepted the reasons. Like I said, it gets complicated. This, this is a major topic of interest for me, and I'm still researching it. Don't want to... Um, yeah, it gets complicated. Like, why would you do that? And Stalin made mistakes, absolutely. Um, I mean, he did cop to some of them. and But, you know, you're talking about the formative period of the first major socialist construction project in history i think it i think it actually came out really well um so anyway yeah but the the whole the end of the common turn thing i was coming across an interesting thing and i don't know how accurate this is hence still in the research phase but there is a marxist leninist uh, named bill bland from the uk was in, in the kind of hojist vein and was trying to develop a case for the idea that Stalin basically dissolved the Comintern to defend communism against revisionist trends that were rising within the Comintern. Um, haven't been able to like really dig in and vet that yet, but there are some other ideas about it. I mean, I think kind of the main thing wasn't wasn't it was that it was kind of a concession to the U.S. and U.K. That was one thing I got, but again, still reading about that. Anarchists don't believe in a vanguard until you ask them what we should do with reactionaries after the revolution. I mean, this is the thing, like, anarchism, it's so idealist. When you get them into, like, a practical position, they wind up reinventing the idea of a vanguard in a proletarian state, because that's what actually makes sense. I think that, you know, as the anarchities, uh, often written as A-N-A-R-K-K-K-I-D-D-I-E-S, anarchities, very apt because it's like i don't like capitalism but i haven't given it any more thought beyond that it's just like a real lack of maturity in thought and yeah we got to help people move beyond that speaking of revisionists on the weekend i was at a local protest against wage theft and was talking shop with what i thought were some comrades long story short russia isn't imperialist apparently and china is actually a dictatorship of the proletariat jaw was dropped many need to go back to basics yeah, it's like I get a lot of people note that PSL is one of the better organized parties with a fair amount of members. Um, they are a 
not actually a Marxist-Leninist party. They're a Marxist party, so kind of a U.S. form of crypto-Trotskyism. And, you know, I mean, they could overcome that and, and develop... I know a lot of the individual members uh, purport to be more Marxist-Leninist, but they've been... Um, you know, I tell people when they mention PSL, I get a lot of comments, and I just say, I know they're one of the better organized things, and they have some affiliated or at least closely connected media outlets, but you got to watch them for revisionism on China and also the multipolarity stuff because, like, Brian Becker is awful on that. There's some people on Twitter, one in particular who I really like because of certain things they do. They're also a diehard supporter of China. Uh, yeah, I know that person, and I wound up blocking them because I just didn't want to get into argument after argument about it. Not sure how to deal with that. They used to live there, so I feel like I can't really challenge them on it. Plus, I'm really conflict avoidant. Is it even worth it to challenge people on stuff like that? On Twitter, absolutely fucking not. I Every time I saw people with bad takes on China, I would just wind up blocking because they were so vitriolic and arguing about it. I was like, you know, I'm sticking with my channel. I'm going to do what I do on my channel. And, uh, I mean, you may not have a channel, but I'm, for me at least, I was like, I cannot deal with continually getting into social media battles with random commenters about China. And I blocked like several hundred people in the course of a couple of months. Now, I don't even really use Twitter anymore. But I wound up doing that because um, I just didn't want to fucking deal with it anymore like i didn't really see a point to it and instead i've just been doing you know some of the audiobooks that we've been doing and other research on the channel i got a book as a gift years ago long before i became communist about mao zedong total hatchet job any recommendations for a balanced look at mao as far as bi biographies i don't know i mean i can just say that as far as it being a hatchet job there is no consequence for making stuff up about Mao Zedong in the United States or in the UK or whatever. Like, there's no consequences. So they can just print complete lies. And I would just stay away from anything like that. I mean, or if you wanted to take specific claims out of the book and be like, was this true? That you can then go get a communist's opinion on a particular topic about what went wrong. Was there a mistake in socialist construction? What was the mistake? Like, if it's factually accurate, what was the actual story? Get it from a communist, not from, you know, some, like, printed in English, like, random book. William Hinton is an author who wrote a lot about Maoist China. I recommend some of Hinton's books. Actually, The Finnish Bolshevik a while back. I was going to read some of these on the channel, and then, or at least excerpts, and then uh, The Finnish Bolshevik did some... Uh, reviews. Actually, in one video, I think he has a video up, all William Hinton books reviewed. So if you want to get an overview of like which books might be good to read about Maoist China, I would point you towards that video because he reviewed like nine William Hinton books. There's other ones too. So there's the Space Baby channel that has a kind of a well-known video about Maoism and like how things were better in China when they were building socialism. There's a lot of uh, recommended readings off of that. And also the video that we did, actually there's two, The Late Cultural Revolution, look up that video. Well, actually I think mainly that one. Look at the recommended readings in those. So wh whenever you find something good like that, follow up the uh, footnotes, that can help. It's actually how we do a lot of the readings, smaller readings you haven't heard of, is because they're referenced in other readings. Actually, 
in the upcoming readings right now, the reason that we did the 1957 statement and we're about to do the 1960 statement of the communist and workers parties of the socialist countries and other countries is because they were referencing the Hoja piece that we were doing as like a prelude to the Hoja on Palestine thing. So just by following footnotes, you can a lot of times find good sources. I made a GPT-4 based bot strictly programmed to be a Marxist Leninist. Are you interested in playing around with it? From my testing, it knows a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'd be happy to share it if you want. Be, you know, feel free to share the link to it or whatever it is. So on the New Zealand thing, there's a, there's a lot that's bad from what links I have. There's way more than that happening here. It's hard to know how to stop. They're attacking everything and everything that could even be a little bit aggressive. So just kind of a full-on fascist push in New Zealand. I'll be sure to read those links that you sent uh, in the chat today. The Rosa Luxemburg movie from 1986 is a very good account of her life into the German Revolution and eventual death. Very engaging and really visually beautiful with the historic clothes, props, etc. Oh, what's I've never heard of a Rosa Luxemburg movie. What's the... Uh, oh, it's just literally called Rosa Luxemburg. And it is a West German drama film directed by Margareta von Trotta. Okay, good to know. Here, I got the link to it here. Yeah, Blue Sky is much nicer for now than Twitter, absolutely. I did see, um, I think they're gearing up for the election. So what's it called? Um, the Democrat Brooklyn Dad is now on Blue Sky or tried to be on Blue Sky and got like shouted down the first day. Why even use Blue Sky when Mastodon has many servers not run by any capitalist country? Uh, they're just really different experiences. There's just more, there's more of a specific culture on Blue Sky. I don't think there's any particular culture on Mastodon. Also, for my experience of using Mastodon, it's useful. I post on there. It just feels a lot more sterile and dry, whereas Blue Sky is... Uh, somebody likened it to um, a theater kid after hours party at, at uh or like after show party at denny's that's that is kind of accurate actually it's just a lot of fun i don't have that much fun on mastodon you know what i mean so blue sky it's a bit more of a party i don't know any good socialist movies not so much fiction but document the documentary on sankara is really good i haven't seen it but judas and the black messiah is supposed to be pretty good but lenin once said quote that all of the arts Oh, that of all the arts, the most important for us is the cinema. Maybe we have to make them. Yes. Somebody else gives a thumbs up to Judas and the Black Messiah. I haven't seen it. Put it on my list there. I just often find when I go for a movie, um, after doing all of the S4A stuff, like day in and day out, the last thing I want to do is, you know, I tend to just go off more into just pure fantasy at that point like the last thing i need to give my brain a break from this stuff so that's why i often don't watch a lot of like real heavy hitting um you know historical drama or anything like that because i'm like literally reading out these audiobooks word for word and you know it's very immersive and i have my ongoing research threads and questions that i'm always trying to build and develop and find out more about when it comes time for me to like sit down and watch something you know a lot of times it needs to have spaceships and lasers in it, but, you know, or, or some such, or zombies, or some other thing that's just a complete departure from, like, anything serious. You know, that's a bit more just uh, freeform psychological play than kind of, like, gritty, 
you know, social realism or, or documentaries or stuff. So it tends to be me. I, you know, I need to give my brain some time to play and, uh, yeah. Movies for me though, seem to be less and less relevant, almost like books, people, oh, almost like books. People don't have the bandwidth for them as much as shorter form stuff. I could be wrong. I've heard that from some people. I mean, we're living through the age, the golden age of TV, like a second golden age or first golden age, if you didn't think there was one in the first place for TV. But basically, it became, I think, with digital cameras, a lot cheaper and a lot easier to produce uh, series. And series started attracting big talent, big directors, big money even. Whereas the movies, I mean, movies have kind of collapsed as an industry where it's like in music where you get big blockbusters and then lots of little indie stuff, but like not really the mid-budget movies so much. Um, anyway, a lot of that has gone into series instead. And what I have heard from some people is, you know, spending two hours on a movie or something, they can't do it, but they can spend 45 hours on an ongoing serial drama or comedy or whatever. So I think that's part of the series thing is people can either like sit down and binge it for a few hours like watching a movie or they can just take a smaller chunk out of it. So, I mean, there's pros and cons to that. A lot of series get real formulaic where they're just like there are series that could have been a movie, you know, or even a two part movie. But instead they try to drag it out to 10 episodes or more. And you're just like, yeah, this did not really need to be. Did not need to be a series, and they're just kind of um, trying to puff it up and fill it out with, like, you know, some contrived B-plot and, you know, other formulaic stuff, but anyway. All right, on COVID and masking, I mask everywhere. My neighbors all hate me and yell abuse at me because of my masking, I assume, but I still wear it. That's terrible. Um, you know, and just say, you could, I mean, if they're even this rational... You can just say, you know, I'm wearing this to protect everyone, myself and you, because if you catch something, you're not going to spread it to them. Uh, it sounds like you have terrible neighbors, though. Hopefully it won't escalate, but I will not be catching anything while they do over and over. Yeah, that's my attitude as well. Another comment, I get asked about my mask at work all the time. I noticed when I worked in a factory with mostly men, I got conspiracy theory lectures. Now in an office with mostly women, general concern over the air quality. Yeah. Yeah. If your office lets you uh, take in an air purifier. So people who don't know, there's something called a Corsi Rosenthal box. C-O-R-S-I-R-O-S-E-N-T-H-A-L. Corsi Rosenthal box. B-O-X. So you can make one of these for about 80, 90 bucks. Um, you can just go to like some hardware store's website and get yourself some MERV 13 filters and you can do a little shopping around to find that. These are basically furnace filters that are very effective air filters. The higher the MERV rating, there's like 11, 13, 15. The higher the MERV rating, the better the filtration, but the more expensive they get. So basically, there's, there's videos. It'll take you about 45 minutes to actually put it together. What you do is you get a box fan and four furnace filters that I think they need to be at least MERV 11. I think I, think I made ones out of MERV 13. Anyway... You get four filters and then a box fan. And it, again, I think mine cost about 90 bucks. I made two of these. And then you get a roll of duct tape. 
and you take the box from the box fan, you cut one of the sides off, and that's the bottom. Then you take the four filters, and you put them so that they filter from the outside in. And you put them on top of the box, the box square, the piece of cardboard. So you lay the piece of cardboard on the floor, you put the four filters standing around it, like the four sides of a cube, and then you tape those together, and use the duct tape to make sure that there's they're you know airtight, that any air is not going through cracks between the filters, but it's going through the filter. Then you put the box fan on top, and then you duct tape that securely in place with no leaks. So then when the fan blows upwards, it sucks air in the four sides, and it's a very effective filter. And I noticed within just a couple of months of running mine, the filters, which started out white, turned gray because they were pulling so much shit out of the air. But look it up. There's videos on YouTube of how to build one. They'll walk you through the whole process. And again, the materials will cost you about 90 minutes, and setting it up will take you about 45 minutes, what it took both times for me. So there you go. And I'm not that handy with physical stuff, and it was not hard to do. So Corsi Rosenthal Box, very effective way to filter your air, and it is effective against bacteria, viruses, and fungal spores so you want to do that it's a good idea anyway yeah let let your neighbors cook they'll be getting sick every couple of months while you won't absolutely so when you say mostly women general concern over the air quality you're saying that the men were like antagonistic to you about like random conspiracy bullshit and the women were actually sort of um, more sympathetic? Is that when you say general concern over the air quality? Oh, yeah, somebody else points out, if you're on Facebook, there are COVIDing groups where you can ask more questions about how to deal with it. And, yeah, people just offer general moral support. You got to watch, though, my understanding is the COVIDing groups, some are more lax than others. Like, you want to look for the COVIDing groups that are, they say something in their name like, we're the more extreme still COVID group and uh, you know, the people who haven't actually backed down. Our receptionist actually was hospitalized and almost died from COVID. That's terrible because if, if you get COVID so bad, you have to be hospitalized. First of all, your risk of long COVID goes through the roof. You're more likely than not at that point to get long COVID. And again, the vaccinations are helpful for priming your immune system. But even being fully vaccinated, you're not reducing your you're reducing your odds of getting long COVID, but you're not reducing them to zero. There's no way to reduce your odds of long COVID completely to zero other than just not getting infected. So you can be fully vaccinated, still have a one in six chance or something of getting long COVID. Yeah. But anyway, if you're hospitalized, your odds of uh, getting long COVID go way up and that can affect you for like a year or more. I've been finding that almost dying isn't making people decide to be more careful recently. I don't know why. And then the response, uh, the receptionist, she doesn't mask. I attribute it to a lack of education. Our public health officials have failed in giving people the correct information and promoting safe practices. No, they didn't just fail to do it. They deliberately withheld it. I mean, the, you can't get uh, public messaging this bad about COVID unless you're trying to. It's deliberate. Uh, Rochelle Walensky was just awful and it was so consistent and it was so, in my opinion, deliberate. That's my opinion.
was you couldn't be putting out messaging that bad unless you were actively trying to. You know, and if I have the information about how dangerous COVID is, you better believe she is the head of the CDC has the same information. What do you think would happen if Donald Trump wins in 2024? Things keep getting shitty, same as they are now. Maybe a little faster in some areas, maybe a little slower in other areas. Overall, Republicans and Democrats are part of the same system. And you can, I just want to say this to people who are like, no, Republicans are definitely worse. In some ways, yes. Here's the problem, though. You can elect Democrats all day long. It never reduces the odds of Republicans getting elected the next time. Democrats are part of the system. They never oppose Republicans in a way that ever takes us out of danger, ever. So the Democrats are good cop in the good cop, bad cop mind game. They're there for the same reason. They're employed by the same people. Yes, they do treat you somewhat differently. That's how the con works. That's how the mind game works. But overall, they're part of the same system, and they're both there for the overall agenda of neoliberalism and, you know, cutting the social welfare net and all of the rest of it. It's just how they work it. And uh, so, yeah, anyway, um, if it's not Donald Trump in 2024, it will be another Republican in some other year. We are in you know, this stage of the system, it's just going to keep getting more and more fascist until the end of capitalism. It's that simple. And how does the end of capitalism happen? Social revolution. It's an active thing. It does not happen on its own. Capitalism does trend to more, more instability and bigger and bigger crises as time goes on. And we just saw 2008. I think we're about to see another one. And what we've seen is in response to the crises of capitalism, more and more trends toward the right wing politically in terms of how they're trying to hang on to this for-profit system. So there's a lot of discussion of neoliberalism that really came in in a big way with Ronald Reagan, the morning in America and all that new vision of like counter-revolutionary type stuff, um, you know, of, of repealing all of the um, social democratic programs from the New Deal, everything that they could it was cut public funding, privatize, and deregulate. That's like the neoliberal slogan. Uh, defund, privatize, deregulate. That even was a response, arguably, to... I mean, there had been libertarian stirrings since the late 60s, early 70s about, hey, what if we just decided to bare-knuckle it and like go in hard against you know, social democracy and public programs? And just kind of like go for a more naked, raw, brutal capitalism. But the material conditions weren't ripe for that until the double dip recession heading into the 80s. Like late 70s and early 80s, massive two-pronged recession that just lasted forever. Huge inflation. This was like, you know, also the, um, the oil crisis and stuff. So as the system goes into greater and greater crisis and profits become harder to come by, they ramp up the fascization. And then we got another big ramp up with, well, even during the Clinton years, there was um, the end of welfare as we know it, the workfare stuff. Um, and then, of course, a major ramping up in the 2000s with Bush and Cheney, the War on Terror, the Patriot Act, all of the sort of police state and increased militarism around that. And then, you know, it just... it. it, it 
there's a certain point where it keeps going along fairly steadily, but then there's also quantum leaps in it. But it's all going in one direction. So if it's not Trump in 2024, it will be eventually somebody like that. And you remember, these people are not independent actors. They're the head of a system, and the system has certain needs. And the system is even international. The U.S. happens to be at the forefront, along with like the U.K. and some of the other big entrenched uh, imperialists. Uh, but it is a global imperialist system. That system is struggling. I would say it's been on a form of life support since the GFC of 2008. And they've managed to squeak out some more profits, but it's going to have another crisis. Like the housing market right now in the U.S. is paralyzed. It's a record low number of sales, like actual transactions taking place is the lowest. The market's completely seized up. And then when something, when it gets going again, it's going to break a bunch of stuff in the process. Politically, the accompanying thing for that is going to be more fascism. And, you know, this is a process, it's, it's the ratchet effect, where the right wing's job is to break new ground in being right wing. Then when the Democrats get in, or like I should say the far right, then when the Democrats get in, their job is to prevent any movement back to the left. Like they just kind of keep it where it is. Maybe they relax the tension slightly, but they just kind of hold it there at that new normal. They don't really undo it. Like I remember at the end of the Bush-Cheney years going, wow, whoever you know comes in after this is going to have a big mess to clean up. But then Obama didn't fucking like, there was no effort to repeal like any of that stuff, really. So it just kind of keeps moving in one direction. All right. Yeah, and I just really want to remind people, you can vote Democrat all day long. It's not going to make a substantial difference in the system. And then 20 years from now, you're going to realize that all of this, you know, all the Democrats being like 2% better than the Republicans, it, seemingly in the short term, you didn't fight for anything in this process. You just fought for things not to get worse at the most rapid possible pace. But things actually did get way worse. So you haven't really done anything. We need to decouple from all of that and put up some actual resistance. They had a town hall meeting on the state of the company I work for, basically saying the markets are looking good, blah, blah, blah. I refuted their claims using the information I got from you. They started stumbling over their words and cooking in general. They basically shat their pants, mouths open, like they were surprised such a lowly factory worker could even understand such things. Good for you. <laughs> it's not hard to see. I've heard people, too, uh, trying to sell me complete lines of bullshit about, you know, how, oh, the markets are going to stay high forever. That literally has never happened before, ever. And in fact, there's so many signs of recession, the inverted yield curve, um, just everything. I mean, we discussed a lot of it at the beginning of the stream. And yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> Good. I'm glad you uh, created some uncomfortable moments for them, at least. Most people won't or can't seek the correct information themselves. It's up for the government to make it easy on people. Too bad capitalist government only cares about making money. Yeah, I mean, so the, the bourgeoisie, through their government and through all of their other institutions in capitalism, they want to minimize class consciousness on the part of the proletariat to make for an easier time in exploiting us. That's really what they want to do. They want to keep class consciousness low and uh, you're right, though, that people do need help thinking about these things. I think that innately, humans are not great about thinking about large-scale society. Um, I wasn't as good at it until I took more sociology courses, for example. 
you know, at an at a advanced level of education. That helped me actually expand my perception and go, oh, that's how society works. However, a lot of people are unaware of the very existence of a discipline called sociology, for example, you know, and then, um, you know, let alone of like uh, Marxism or something. Although people have heard of Marxism because of the efforts of, you know, the USSR and other things in uh, making Marxism-Leninism an official state ideology. I mean, to the extent that um, in their more revolutionary times, they actually promoted it. Anyway, but the idea that you can think about society and study society scientifically is um, a thought that I think a lot of people don't necessarily have. In fact, there's a lot of people who flatly will contest that you can study society. I mean, a lot of right-wingers are just like, it's not hard science, it's soft science or whatever. No, it's social and behavioral sciences are as real as any other science. The difference is that when you're studying, like in chemistry, you're studying chemical molecules, in biology, you're studying biological reactions and things like that. The subject of your study is somewhat fixed. Like, you know, a, a molecule of ozone or a molecule of ammonia or whatever. It It's not conscious, it's not sentient, and it's not going to start acting super differently just because you asked it a different question. The thing about studying people, behavior, psychology, and then on a larger scale, society, is that people have imaginations. And we're complicated in that our behavior, you know, can differ based on attitude, knowledge, values, beliefs. And we're not as straightforward to study. That said, things are built into social sciences and behavioral sciences to account for those things. And researchers have found ways to, um, you know, and not everybody agrees on all of it, but have found ways to actually account for some of the uncertainty that gets introduced by the fact that the human mind and human behavior is malleable in different conditions. That's a thing. But that doesn't mean it's impossible to study. You know, it's pure chaos, totally random. No, that's not the case at all. Uh, there is some amount of uncertainty to it. And because people do possess the ability to make different choices in different situations, but it, it still can be studied. Anyway, the point being, people need help, I think, to think on that level, unless you have done some study, and Marxism is one way to do it, um, about you know thinking about the large-scale economy, class struggle, historical development. I don't think it's something that comes that naturally to the human brain, sort of in general. I don't think it's been part of our evolutionary selection process. And, uh, you know, we're sort of innately good at some things better than other things because of evolutionary pressures. Uh, that said, we still have a generalized intelligence, which gives us a lot of abilities that can be developed in, in a lot of ways that are of our choosing. And I think that people do need um, some, some amount of help developing that capacity for thinking about society scientifically. Once they do, I mean, we can do amazing things with it. Also, capitalism is not that complicated. It seems imposing and it seems intimidating. When you break down the logic of capitalism, it's not that complicated, actually. And it's, it's very predictable because it's just, you know, it basically comes down to uh, somebody just reaching out for all the stuff on the table going more and all the other people trying to do the same thing. And then how do they work this out amongst themselves? Uh, 
to a certain extent that's that's what's going on that was of course the more technical aspects of um surplus value extraction and and so on but point being yes people do need help thinking about society i think that after some education in that area people can produce much more sensible points of view about you know questions of public health or just any other social question better than they probably could off the shelf so yes it would be the role of the government or you know some other powerful institution in society to give people that education capitalists absolutely as like the last thing that they want us to develop that ability and if they can even keep us from knowing that it is possible to study society scientifically that is even better for them Sad seeing Maduro destroy the image built by Chavez, fallen to chauvinism. The Communist Party there has a better position. Yeah, there's people uh, trying to say that Venezuela is like run by communists. No, there's an actual Communist Party in Venezuela, and it's actually not uh, that friendly with the government there. So along those lines, somebody did ask me if I could comment on the Venezuela-Guiana situation. I said, what is the Venezuela-Guiana situation? Because I really uh, didn't. No, I guess this is something just developing. But yeah, this is from yesterday from Reuters. Tensions between neighbors Venezuela and Guyana have ratcheted up in recent weeks over a long-running territorial dispute. Guess what they're fighting over? Oil and gas. Wow, how original. At issue is a 160,000 square mile, or square kilometer, or 62,000 square mile border territory around the Esequibo River which is mostly jungle and an offshore area where massive discoveries of oil and gas have been made. Both countries claim ownership of the territory, which is sparsely populated and whose much disputed border was agreed under an 1899 decision when Guyana was still part of the British Empire. So part of that dispute is, in other words, uh, throwing off the vestiges of colonialism. So what has sparked the tensions? Venezuela reactivated its claim to the territory in recent years after the finding of some 11 billion barrels of recoverable oil and gas off of Guyana's coast. Caracas, in Venezuela, won backing in a referendum at the weekend to create a new state, and President Nicolas Maduro has pledged oil and mining exploration in the claimed area. So i got a little follow-up clip on this. Now... One of the things about Venezuela and oil is that it had been subject to U.S. sanctions. The Biden administration, following the thing with Russia, where they're sanctioning Russia now instead, another major oil-producing country, they have eased sanctions on Venezuela. So let's read this. Uh, so, and this is from October, so pretty recent. The Biden administration on Wednesday broadly eased sanctions on Venezuela's oil sector in response to a deal reached between the government and opposition parties for the 2024 election, the most extensive rollback of Trump-era restrictions on Caracas. A new general license issued by the U.S. Treasury Department authorized OPEC member Venezuela, which has been under crushing sanctions since 2019, to produce and export oil to its chosen markets for the next six months without limitation, partly because the U.S. needs to replace some of that Russian oil. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken welcomed President Nicolas Maduro's electoral concessions, but said that Washington, Washington has given him until the end of November to begin lifting bans on opposition presidential candidates and start releasing political prisoners and wrongfully detained Americans. A senior State Department official speaking to Reuters on condition of anonymity 
threatened to reverse sanctions relief measures unless Maduro takes such action. The U.S. follows um, the U.S. moves follow months of negotiations in which Washington had pressed Caracas for concrete actions toward democratic elections in return for lifting some, but not all, of the tough sanctions imposed under former U.S. President Donald Trump. So the U.S. is trying to make this about democratic rights, which it itself does not really follow. Also, the U.S., just to remind everyone, runs CIA black site torture facilities around the world. So much for democratic rights. Uh, no, this is about the U.S. has a voracious appetite for oil. And, you know, they have bumped Russia up the priority list in terms of putting sanctions, and they got to get some more oil from somewhere else. So Venezuela gets uh, let off a little bit as a result of that. This, this question may be too nitty-gritty in terms of economics, but is there a reason that there may be a housing crash as a back-to-back -back capitalist crisis? Also, I've heard some say that boom and bust is an issue with supply and demand. No, it's, well, I mean, it's an overproduction crisis, basically. How is a socialist planned economy specifically immune to housing crashes? Is it simply because everyone gets housing? So there's a couple of um, comments responding to that. Let me read those first, then I'll give my answer. Housing, uh, first response, housing is treated as a human right, so people can't speculate on it. The problem is when so much of the housing stock is owned by landlords who are just holding it hostage on the market with really high prices, waiting for it to sell. That is definitely a problem. Um, one of the main reasons is that as far as the speculation on housing, so first of all, houses are one of the most expensive things that most people engage with. They're very expensive, multi-hundred thousand, I mean, you can technically find some houses under a hundred thousand dollars, but for the most part, these are multi-hundred thousand dollar purchases that everybody needs housing. So you're either renting from somebody who did buy a building and maybe owns millions of dollars worth of housing or you're buying it yourself. There's also tremendous money to be made in terms of um, the lending and the interest that the lenders can charge. So they give you a mortgage for $200,000. They're making tens of thousands of dollars off of that. Off of, well, here, let's, so uh, you can look up mortgage calculators online. Mortgage calculator. So let's say that you want to get a loan, go to mortgagecalculator.org. You want to get a loan. Uh, so right now, like the median house price in the U.S. is about $400,000. And so let's say that you put a 20% down payment. That's $80,000. And then so the amount of the loan, like the rest of it that you're not paying for up front, because you're just putting down the $80,000 up front. So you got $320,000 that also has to be paid. And so you got to get a loan for it because unless you have that in cash, you got to come up with the money from somebody else who's going to pay for it and then you pay them back. Okay. And there's technically also owner financing sometimes, but that's pretty rare um, with housing. So as far as interest rates, what are you paying right now? Well, 7% roughly, I mean, on mortgagecalculator.org, they're saying 7.77%, but let's say you're paying 7% interest because... There, it's not 2% anymore, let's put it that way. And then what's the term of the loan? Well, very typical is 30 years. You can also find 20-year mortgages. You can find 10-year mortgages. Most people are getting 30-year mortgages. So now there's also property tax, and then there's uh, mortgage insurance. So let's say that the property tax is 2500 a year, 
and then the insurance is 2500 a year and there's no homeowner's fee loan type so they have in the drop down box conventional fha uh, va and usda so the those last three are some sort of government backed loans we'll just do conventional loan because the other things have certain things you got to have to qualify um, like be a veteran or be buying in a rural area or something like that. All right, so there you go. Those are the results from the calculator. So we bought a house for $400,000. We put 80000 down. And so PMI, mortgage insurance, was not required. If you put less than 20% down, or it depends what kind of loan, um, basically, if you don't put as much down up front as they would like, they make you pay insurance on the mortgage. So it's, it's crazy, that can be like a huge other expense. So what it ends up being is your monthly payment is $27,2194. That's after paying 80,000 out of pocket up front. And your annual payment amount is 32.6 or 32.7 if you round up. The total interest paid, the total interest paid, get ready. Remember your original loan was 400,000. Like that was that, the price of the house. You put 80000 down, you wanted a mortgage for 320000 The total interest paid, drumroll please, $507,000. So you paid 120% of the purchase price in interest. So your total, uh, at the end of this, you paid almost a million dollars for a uh, $320,000 mortgage. The total at the end, the total of 360 payments is $980,000. So that's an enormous amount of interest. Now, this is just one house purchase here. Now imagine, you know, dozens of these in every county per year or hundreds or thousands. These things get then get bundled together. They get traded to each other. People speculate on them, all kinds of things. As the interest rates change... Because so why does the Federal Reserve raising the interest rates change all of this? It's not directly controlling the amount that uh, lenders are requiring on mortgages, but it does change the cost for them of getting debt to fund themselves with. So that in turn affects, you know, the cost that they have to pass on to other people. There's also other relationships with other financial instruments, but we'll leave that out for right now. So anyway. You've got a tremendous amount of money happening here in the interest payments alone. So as um, the Federal Reserve tightens rates to try to cool off inflation, you're sending major shockwaves through these markets. Um, I mean, if you have more kind of specific questions, the, the general answer, why, why does housing create such, uh, or what's the, what's the connection here? Um, why are housing crashes go back hand in hand with capitalist crisis? Well, we talked about a number of things because it's a gigantic purchase that is difficult for many people to afford in a time of, uh, you know, the, when the cycle goes bust, people get thrown out of work. They can't make their housing payments. Then the lender has to scramble to, um, you know, they paid for the thing. They have to try to recoup their loss. There's all kinds of just crazy shockwaves that it sends through the system at that point. Like, as far as, you know, all the nitty gritty, you could be running down them for, for a long time. On the other hand, if you're doing a socialist planned economy where housing is a guaranteed right for people, you're not letting investors buy up 
uh, properties when they get cheap, they just go to people that need to use the housing. And you, I mean, you avoid so much of this. I don't know. I mean, if you want to follow up on that, I'm happy to keep answering, but it's kind of general, I guess. If you will tell the difference between Trotskyism and Stalinism, Stalinism is not a thing. It's called Marxism-Leninism, and it's not specific to Stalin. Uh, I will give you a cookie. Uh, I am full, but thank you. And I don't know. Trotskyism is when you whine about Stalin a lot. That's that's Trotskyism. Do you consider Biden a fascist? Biden is a person who participates in a system which is increasingly headed toward fascism. I think it's not... The Democrats do not play the role of the leading reactionary faction within this good cop, bad cop system. Overall, though, Biden presides over a system that is increasingly reliant on the, you know, out-of-control police gangs as an internal army to enforce its will. Um, Biden is not really doing anything to oppose any of, any of that. So, yeah, I mean, everyone who participates in this system is helping to maintain capitalism past its sell-by date. Um, you know, there are certain... People break it down differently, but if you're a part of the system and you're not dismantling it and Biden isn't, then I guess you could say, yes, he's a fascist. I hit 40 and I suddenly realized I'm past my statistical halfway point and it really motivated me to eat better and to exercise. Yes, as you get older, you definitely have to take better care of yourself. When you're in your teens and 20s, like what you eat and how much sleep you get just may not hit you as hard. The older you get, the more you have to be mindful of it. And this is like really common for people to be like, you know, when I was 30, I did or 20 or whatever, I didn't uh, have to watch what I eat so much, but now I'm sensitive to like half of the foods. This is a common thing. So yeah, you do have to be more mindful of your health if you want to keep it. I'd like to see 80 and I got away with terrible food and no exercise for my first 40 years. Luckily, I'm in good overall health, so I'm trying to keep it that way. Well, good for you. And um, good. Yeah, happy to, you know, keep engaging with you as we get into more kind of food nutrition related stuff to, you know, just kind of encourage people being conscious and positive about that because there's a lot of people that are somewhat activity phobic or sort of... Um, diet phobic and again diet doesn't mean you're restricting your food diet is just what you eat it's what's on the menu so you know keeping an eye on what you're eating and staying as active as you can be without you know overdoing it um you know getting enough sleep all that kind of stuff it, it really can make a big difference in in your health so but yeah happy to keep encouraging people to do that because there there really is a point to it what do you think about the socialism of Tito? I mean, we're of the general opinion that this was a form of revisionism. And as has been discussed, for example, by Hoja in uh, Yugoslav Self-Management, a Capitalist System. By the way, for people struggling with the YouTube ad blocker deal, I've been using Brave Browser. It's, a, it's another browser and it kind of has built-in privacy stuff. Um, that gets completely around the YouTube ad situation. There's also, if you're in a situation where you can do command line stuff, there's a program called YTDLP. It's YT-DLP, where you just literally type in the command YT-DLP, and then your YouTube 
address and it'll just auto download the thing for you. Did not many Trotskyites become neocons in the US? Yes. Yeah, the sort of ex-Trotsky to weird right-winger pipeline is kind of a big thing in the US. Yeah, okay, so talking about the person on Twitter who has a particular talent, um, I think I developed a bit of a parasocial attachment to them that I should let go of. I think I can enjoy their talent, but that doesn't mean I need to agree with their opinions. Yeah, there's, I think, a fair amount on Twitter of people being very terminally online and looking for things out of online situations that just cannot be reliably gotten out of them. I think there's also a lot of people online who especially have a lot of followers and from a distance might seem like exciting and somebody you'd want to know. If you met them in person, you might feel differently. And, you know, I mean, this is just true in life in general. Even somebody you do meet in person and they're not surrounded by throngs of people, like you just meet them and become friends with them. Uh, sometimes you get to know people and it's not all that you hope for or whatever. Or you, or your values and goals match for a while, and then after a while, like, you just find you want different things out of life and go in different directions or whatever. But yeah, I think it just gets confusing with the kind of online stuff, especially with people who do have kind of like a, you know, um, really looking for all that attention online. and Because I think that they put themselves out there in a way that lends itself to others who get parasocially attracted to them. And that's not something I'm trying to promote. Again, we're doing education here. I, I, I'm happy to see certain people regularly participate in this community, but I'm trying to make it be about the work. You know what I mean? I'm trying to make it be about this thing we all have in common rather than about any of us personally. I don't think that that's really healthy or good from kind of purely online anonymous relationships. So you know, let's help each other with this thing we have in common. I'm sure we'll have, you know, a few little shared personal tidbits along the way, but, you know, kind of keeping that to the small part of, of the whole thing. But yeah, of course, we're all human and, and stuff, so. The problem with calling a bad Marxist a renegade is that it sounds kind of cool. I know, it's uh, that word renegade, but in this context, that is bad. Apparently, Venezuela is using the current climate of lax world policing by the U.S. to resurrect an old dispute it has with Guyana over a big chunk of territory that's recently proven oil rich. You know, Don Joe, I'm actually going to go a step further and speculate. Perhaps it is even getting like a wink and a nod from the U.S. to go do this. In other words, if they're being a supplier of the U.S., is the U.S. being like, by the way, heard they got some oil over in Guyana. I want to talk to them about that. Don't know, because I'm not, you know, behind the scenes at the Venezuelan State Department. But it wouldn't be the first time that such a thing took place. This move from Maduro is what made me realize the Communist Party there is 100% right by distancing themselves and wanting change. Well, yeah, I mean, they also... Uh, the. Venezuelan government also kind of let the bourgeoisie put them in a really bad position, didn't they, for a long time by um, withholding all the essential stuff. Like, uh, I just said stuffs. By withholding all the essential things. I mean, there's the sanctions from the U.S., yes. 
But I think there was also the internal situation of the bourgeoisie kind of doing like capital strikes and withholding supplies. So I don't know. Yet again, why we're Marxist Leninists, which is a, you know, more ground up movement involving, um, well, tactics where it's a lot harder for the bourgeoisie to pull that kind of thing. Movie actors are now doing TV. Yeah, there's like been a definite shift of, uh, well, I think people have seen, series have proven themselves, in other words. So there's by now been, I think it started in the late 90s with The Sopranos and those kind of like HBO shows. What was the other one? Um, Six Feet Under, where it was like, oh, somebody's making, or even you could go back to like Twin Peaks in the early 90s on, on network TV. But it was like people making series that were trying to break out of just being you know, kind of mindless, like Full House, The Brady Bunch, just sort of dreck, you know, sitcom, like trash with a laugh track. But somebody said, hey, what if we made serial content that was a bit higher quality and, you know, would let us sit with the characters over a longer period of time? And so you got those like Six Feet Under and The Sopranos. And it kind of just kept going from there. It was a lot of it was from HBO originally. And then they kind of kept building it. And then AMC had like The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad and you know, of course, Netflix realized a great people, a great way to keep people using your service is by binge watching series. So they started producing and commissioning all kinds of series, too. But I think it's also like after there were some quality series that actors started going and probably the money was there, too. It was like actors started realizing, oh, I can do TV without it being having the connotation of being just like utter shit, which it really did have for a long time especially like before the 90s you know if you were doing tv it was definitely goofy and lesser and uh and that kind of thing yeah movies are no longer the landmark generational experiences they were that kind of like cultural touchstone of like a back to the future or a ghostbusters tv has like series have become that shared experience now like the walking dead is the new back to the future or ghostbusters or whatever you know but it's hours and hours of content. And it also jumps the shark at some point. I had one drunk dude on the bus and one old fart in Walmart get offended by my mask. But more often than not, you just get the odd weird look here. Bonus is that I feel like people sit beside me on the bus less. Maybe they think I'm sick. Yeah, exactly. Many benefits. Apparently feature films are easier to bury for a tax write-off as well. I actually worked on this film. Warner Brothers tried to shelve it for a tax write-off. Now they're reversing it after facing potential investigation. You don't need to go into this now, but this is an interesting read. Interesting. Anecdotally, everyone I know at work or in my personal life who don't mask are sick way more often than they used to be. Yeah, that's both because COVID is circulating and because if you do catch COVID, it hollows out your immune system. You get COVID-related immune dysfunction from the T-cells that it killed, like I was talking about before. I wear my mask at work to protect myself first and foremost, but I also have an additional reason because it annoys the shit out of my coworker who's a QAnon guy. He's literally screaming by the end of the day. It's hysterical. There you go. And it is pathetic indeed. In the UK, no one is wearing masks anymore. Are people still wearing them in America? I would say about one in 200 are wearing masks. Each COVID infection does some damage to your immune system. No? Yes, that is correct. It wears down. It kills T-cells and also just wears them out. So they're less effective. But yeah, it's really bad for your immune system. 
So that and that's something we were talking about in the last stream. All the stuff about I'll put it back up on the screen. The um, pneumonia that is making the rounds right now. They're calling it the white lung pneumonia in China. It's also hitting in the UK and Denmark and Ohio in the middle of the U.S. Um, where did I put this? Here it is. Mystery pneumonia is a mix of common respiratory germs, the WHO says. Reports caused alarm, but experts say it looks like a post-COVID germ comeback. So I was just last night watching footage from Chinese hospitals. It's happening among kids, and there's a huge outbreak. I mean, it's really big. Uh, also, there the outbreak in Ohio meets the criteria for an official government-declared outbreak. Let me put that up on the screen as well. And... Is it just common, um, common pathogens hitting people harder for some reason? Well, if that's the case, then that could be due to COVID-induced immune dysfunction, unless there's something else suppressing people's immune systems. But we know that COVID does that, so that would be my first guess. Especially after all of the COVID that was rampantly circulating last year in particular. People still are probably immune depleted from that. But it could also be a novel pathogen and it's being covered up. We don't know yet. My brother almost died of COVID and he bought a big box of masks that he never wears. Okay, well, you know, having it, step one, step two, putting it on. I fell for the Democrat con for so long. Reply, I had a major argument with my dad about this over Thanksgiving this year. I mean, I just don't know what people are missing at this point. Like, the Democrats, no matter how many times they get in office, things keep getting worse. Even if you think that while they're in office, they're better than the Republicans, look at the 40-year trend. Like, you can elect all the fucking Democrats you want. Things keep getting worse. They never get better. You know, and then that's where I guess you get the, oh, we just need more of them. No, that's, we need a different system at this point. They're committed to a moribund system. That's that's the problem here. I'm curious to see a survey on COVID attitudes based on demographics such as income, sex, race, age, etc. We've actually covered that before. Um, look, at, I think the Kaiser Family Foundation did it. Let me look it up. But yeah, KFF.org has a number of things about inequality in COVID, which again is disproportionate across different dem demographics. Okay, so this is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, KFF.org. Six in ten adults said people should continue masking to avoid COVID-19 surges with splits by partisanship, income, and race. And you can see the chart on the right side. Which comes closer to your view? Now that COVID-19 case rates are lower, uh, that's wrong. So case rates are lower because they stop fucking counting them. But the actual circulation of COVID in the wastewater, as we were showing before, and let me go... Back to that for people just watching this particular segment. Look at where we're at with the wastewater right now. We're, you know, the Northeast and Midwest are over a thousand. By the time you're over 750 or eight, you're in a major surge. They're over a thousand now. And so the overall surge level at the top is as high as any of the surges in 2020 or 2021, except for Omicron. And it's catching up with where we were last year, which was an unmitigated shit show of SARS-2 spread. So yeah, case rates are lower. That's the teal line underneath the blue wastewater curve. That's because they stopped counting them. It's not because cases are lower. That's kind of a ridiculous thing. 
But, I mean, they would be more honest to say, which comes closer to your view? Now that you think that COVID-19 is over, dot, 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 or lower, and the two options where people should stop wearing masks in most public places so that things can get back to normal. I'm sorry, you can do everything you normally did except eat and drink wearing a mask. People have this just, um, it's a form of denialism, this, this hypersensitivity, this hyper-worship of the mythical normal. What does that mean? There are diseases in the world. COVID is one of them. You can't just wish them away. So this idea of getting back to normal as your primary value, the only thing a mask stops you from doing is eating and drinking. That's it. That's it. You can go shopping. You can do anything else. You can go for a walk. You know, you, you can do maybe not swimming, but like you can do pretty much anything else wearing a fucking mask that is, quote, normal. You can go to school, you can go to work, you can do all the normal things, all right? Or people should continue to wear masks in some public places to minimize the spread of COVID-19 and avoid another surge in cases. Um, and then, yeah, you break it down by race and ethnicity. Uh, 88% of black American respondents said keep masking. Only 9% said stop wearing masks back to normal. And then you can see significant differences among white respondents. It was 50-50. Hispanic respondents, 69 for masking, 30% against. Then household income. You can see lower income people more likely to say keep masking. Then party ID. Democrats far more likely to say keep masking, but then in reality they're not doing it. And independents, less likely but still a majority say keep masking in some public places. I'd love to know which public places because I don't see people masking virtually anywhere. And then Republicans, it's seven in 10 say, get back to normal. So there's a clear, you know, partisan split between left and right wing stuff there. Um, COVID-19 vaccination status, two thirds of people who are vaccinated say, keep masking. And then two thirds of the unvaccinated say, get back to normal. And then if you have a chronic health condition, only 65% say, keep masking. And uh, then no chronic health condition, it's lower. So people who have a chronic health condition, some kind of disability or chronic sickness, more people, uh, you're more likely to say keep masking. So yeah, there's your breakdown there. And we, we've covered that before. I'm not sure when this is from. This is from March 2022. But yeah, that's been consistent throughout the pandemic. And I don't know what the current figures are, because clearly, as I was saying, like, you know, it says six and 10 say keep masking, but then obviously nobody is. I don't even think last year it was even close to six and 10. So, you know, even in March 2022, I don't know what, where this is coming from exactly. I definitely was not seeing 60% of the general public masking at that point. But anyway, um, yeah, I definitely still mask. But there you go. That's at least some of the more historical breakdown. And, and that's what I'm familiar with. Let me put that link in the chat. And yeah, if anybody finds a 2023 update, that would be interesting. Bill Clinton gave us a quantum leap toward right-wing politics with the 94 crime bill. Thanks, Biden, who was also part of that effort. That was the start of three strikes laws and a huge increase in prison population and ratcheting up of the war on drugs. Yeah, and so certain cities like Rudy Giuliani, now a major Republican rock star. Giuliani started out much earlier, like I think in the early 80s, uh, being like an anti-mafia, anti-organized crime um prosecutor and was part of bringing down organized crime 
then became mayor of New York City in the 90s and started like a massive police state crackdown. And that was right around that time of that, that Clinton era crime bill. And then, of course, um, Clinton doing the workfare instead of welfare bill, ending welfare as we know it. So, yeah. But still, um, and, you know, Clinton also did other significantly shitty things. It was under him that Glass-Steagall was repealed, significantly deregulating the financial sector. Also, the uh, Telecommunications Act, I think, of 96, which basically repealed restrictions on monopolies or... um, you know, large uh, consolidation of ownership in media. That's why there's like three companies that own almost all the radio stations now is because of that. Prior to that, you were not allowed to own, you know, more than one TV station in a particular city and things like that. So Clinton did shitty things. I'm just saying it wasn't um, the kind of major overhaul that you saw with Reagan, that you saw with Bush Cheney, where it was this like, kind of new vision put out there of like, we're going to do this huge step. But no, for sure, under Clinton, under Obama, there was still a march to the right. Just wasn't like rolled out as this kind of like grand gesture. Because that's not what the liberal base of the Democratic Party wants. I mean, you know, say what you want. And when we talk about the Democrats, we're talking about the party, the people who take the money, do the fundraisers, talk to the capitalists that actually keep that party going. That's one thing. The um, average Democrat that backs them is actually significantly to the left on most issues. You know, they do allow themselves to be swayed somewhat by party propaganda and by like CNN and all that kind of stuff. But like if you ask the average Democrat, they think that the Democrats should do more for civil rights and, and different things. And they're not happy that they don't. They just think that there's no other option, which is why we have to keep organizing and keep building class consciousness to get to that point where more people peel off because you know a lot of people are not sort of born leaders but they will join in on something if you get it big enough and harris was a da i'm not sure super racist the democrats are harris was a oh was a da i was like was a da it wasn't capitalized so there's a comment about um indigenous people getting hit hardest by covid so healthcare in uh like on reservations in North America is terrible. There's absolutely terrible condition uh, conditions on um, any kind of Native American, you know, uh, I, I don't even know how to go into this, but so if you look at life expectancy declines, there's been a life expectancy decline in the U.S. because of the pandemic. But if you break it down by demographics, it's significantly more in certain demographics compared to others. And it hit American Indians the hardest because conditions are just awful there across the board. Medical care is not good. I mean, for most people, it's unaffordable. And then it's that much worse in American Indian communities and reservations. And, uh, you know, they get all the... You can find many videos like on Twitter or whatever of some of the water that people are expected to drink, like that have access to very dirty water to actually, you know, use from day to day. Conditions are really awful. So while I think that the average life expectancy in the U.S. came down two years, in American Indian communities, it came down six years. Seeing how Marxism overlaps with other scientific fields blows my mind. I definitely need to read more on that. Yeah, also, uh, interesting 
topic related to science and Marxism is women in the sciences in socialist countries versus in non-socialist countries, significantly more gender equality in the sciences in the socialist countries. There should be a law where you can only own two houses max. I mean, it'd be a start. There's all kinds of things you could do, but yeah. I tried to go the Trotsky route, playing Hearts of Iron 4 about six months ago. The world was taken over by fascists. It's okay. You know, if you're a Trotskyist, um, your main weapon is complaining. Just complain about it. <laughs> when are you and your partner going to buy a house and settle down? Asks my suburban Midwestern family members. I can't. Me living outside a major East Coast city. Yeah, houses, um, I don't know where you are on the East Coast, but there's a lot of places along the East Coast that housing prices are still rising as of right now. I th Okay, so going back to the thing about housing and the tie-in with the capitalist crack-up, I think I understand, like, the combination of housing being A, a necessary purchase for humans, unnecessarily rapacious lending practices leaves enough people who are unable to pay their mortgages, leading to two back-to-back -back crashes. I mean, it just... This is something I'm trying to articulate better and I'm continually working on. It's just that, like, housing transactions... Okay, here, let's see. What percentage of the GDP are housing transactions? All right, so there it is. Share of value added to the gross domestic product of the United States in 2022 by industry. Now, that's tiny, so I'm going to have to bring it up on the other screen and blow it up. So 20% of the GDP of the U.S., finance, insurance, real estate, rental, and leasing. So it's the single biggest thing. Then professional and business services at 13%, then government, almost 12%, manufacturing, 11%, educational services, healthcare, and social assistance, 8.4%. In sixth place, wholesale trade, seventh place, retail trade at 6%. Information, 5.5%. Then you get arts, entertainment, recreation, accommodation, and food services at 4%. Construction, 4%. So there you go. Um, basically, I mean, and if you put construction back in to the real estate stuff, you know, it's really significant. I can kind of understand houses being expensive in the UK uh, and Japan as we have a lack of land, but in North America, I don't understand it as much. It's true, there is a lot of empty space in um, especially the western half of the U.S., which is actually where more of the crash is happening more quickly. Um, I'll see if I can get some charts up in the next, um, in the next uh, stream of that. But yeah, basically in the west, you have a lot more land where you can do new construction. In the east... Um, more of the land is already developed, so you're more likely to find houses, you know, going back to the 1700s even in some cases, or sometimes even earlier, although those will usually be more like historically preserved. But you'll find like housing in use from the 1800s, you know, 1910, something like that. And it's just been sitting around for a long time, a lot of times in bad condition, yet because there's like something of a shortage again that's being driven in part by investors sitting on vacant stock um you know I, I had somebody trying to tell me that there was a housing crisis in that there's more people who need housing than there are um houses and that's i was not 
in a situation to like get into a big thing with them about it at the time, but that's flatly untrue. There is enough housing for everyone, but not it's not being distributed to people. So yeah, there's definitely enough housing, but it's not given to people. Anyway, you're right. The thing is, in the West, it's kind of like a big empty part of the place, but those are where the um, prices are crashing more, is West Coast, and then in from the West Coast, like Idaho, Nevada, um, and, and down into the Southwest, like Arizona, New Mexico. Yeah, it's like there's land in the U.S., but is there anything there? Like, go to the Dakotas, go to Nebraska. There's not that much there. What you'll find is just roads going for hundreds of miles through, like, empty, flat plains. Just saying, as someone who also has Brave, I primarily use Firefox now and has been trying to be on top of this whole anti-adblock situation, you should know that Brave's built-in adblock also gets detected by YouTube's anti-adblock. Whenever an adblock's filter list is updated, you won't see ads, whether it's the extension, uBlock Origin, or Brave's built-in adblock. Personally, I recommend using uBlock Origin either in Firefox or Brave. If you use it in Brave, disable the built-in ad block uh, for UBO to function properly. I mean, it's working fine for me in Brave, so I don't know. I do not see any ads on, on Brave. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, the film industry was milking people. Yeah. All right. There's a decent question. Why do you think the socialist side lost in the Spanish Civil War? Uh, I am way too wiped to go into that, but I will note your comment for the future. All right. Oh my God, the chat really keeps going on today. We had a lot of people in the chat here. The whiter you get, the less you care about COVID. Shocking. Not really. I wish they would create a mask where I can drink my coffee. Don't really care about anything else. Even so-called leftists often are not masking anymore. A whole bunch of my fellow disabled people are no longer masking, well, they're going to get a wake-up call, and, you know, hopefully people can... We need to keep reminding people to do this before they find out the hard way. Uh, we have three strikes laws here in New Zealand as well. Prison population also consists of a lot of Maori. So, in other words, your prison system is also racist. Because in the U.S. it's very racist. On many reservations, the water quality is worse than Flint, Michigan's. Yeah, that's absolutely. People may not be aware of how bad conditions are on reservations. Indigenous in Canada as well, horrible conditions, no access to medical care due to the remoteness in a country with ostensibly socialized medicine, which of course has been under heavy assault for several decades now. And that's not even getting into the racism when it comes to actually getting into care. Healthcare policies in the reservations are genocidal. I heard they have mandatory tubal sterilization post-childbirth on postpartum mothers. Uh, comment, they're definitely doing that here in Canada, like almost like a forced one-child policy. Did not know that. Sometimes they'll even sterilize indigenous women when they do other procedures, like they go to get their appendix removed, and then they were told afterward that they were sterilized. So they would do that to black women in the U.S. Uh, for a long time as well. I'm starting to draw parallels between indigenous people here and in Palestine. Well, yeah, because it's another colonial effort. Like, if there was social media and stuff back during the more active... So colonization in the U.S. and North America generally is ongoing. But um, 
during the more active parts where there was bigger and bigger land grabs, yes, it would look exactly like what's going on in, in Palestine now. It just wasn't documented uh, on video, you know, to the same degree, but it is still ongoing today. Canada's GDP is dependent on housing inflation, I believe, so there's no incentive to stop it. Yeah, and they'll, they'll just, oh, we'll fix the crash after it happens. In fact, they're desperately trying to keep it that way. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, when, okay, so this is another thing when trying to understand why is housing so important for the crash, because housing is, um, the main like store of value for the average person. It's the most valuable thing that they own. So when house prices go up, they become quote wealthier, except, I mean, when they do, except it doesn't stay that way when it's just a bubble, you know, it goes that way for a few years and then it collapses and maybe you use some of the equity in your house to do some other financing that may be affected by it when it crashes and the value comes back down. So there's, there's all kinds of things, but yeah, so Canada's GDP is dependent on housing inflation. So there's no incentive to stop it. They're desperately trying to keep it that way. When you hear people talking about how, oh, the prices will always stay high forever and you're building wealth and all this other kind of stuff. It's complete crap. I wonder how many people, you hear this from people in the industry, and I wonder how many of them actually believe it, but they, they sure want to believe it. That's very clear. The reason that the Republicans lost is simple. Most of the military sided with the nationalists in Spain and Germany and Italy were funding them with arms, weapons, and sending troops there while there was an embargo on aid to the Republicans. Also, the British supported Franco, see Portugal. The USSR could have sent more military aid, of course, but that risked the Soviet military capacity, which was fighting for its life. It risked heating up the conflict and causing the Spanish Civil War, spilling over into a European conflict, and the Spanish Civil War wasn't going to be won by the Republic with a little bit of extra military aid. The USSR was not prepared for a full-scale European conflict at that point. Let's uh, pick this up in the future. If people want to DM me their opinions and resources on the Spanish Civil War and the USSR in there, I will be happy to start compiling stuff. But we have caught up with the chat, and we are over four hours, and we are going to call it there. I want to thank everybody. This is a pretty big stream today. And want to thank everybody for contributing to it. You know, the stream, I could just sit here and talk into the mic for a few hours, but it is much more... Uh, interesting, lively, productive, and varied with everyone else's contributions. So if you like the stream, thank me, but also thank a patron and thank a chat contributor. But yeah, so thanks again to everybody for listening, and we will be back soon with more audiobooks and more streams.